Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Uh, here we go. Holler if you hear me. Holler if you hear me. <laughs> All right, yeah, that's you, went, you went Big Papa Pump. I was going. Uh, I was going Master P. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Went a, diff- went a little bit of a different direction. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Matthew. <clears throat> <clears throat> big Papa Pump is a big, scary white guy. He sure is. Yeah. Um. He sure is. He doesn't seem like a nice person to me. No, he seems like a. <laughs> he seems like a, his name should be Chastity. He seems like he's white trash, yeah, Kyle. Yeah. He seems like he's white trash. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how the fuck we started talking about this. I, it's okay. I can say that. You can say what? White oh, trash. Yeah, yeah, I, I can say that. I'm black. Okay. Is that how it works? No. All right. All right. Is, is everyone sufficiently confused? This is your, welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues podcast. Here we are. Today, Kyle and I are going to do something we tried to do last week that did not work very well. No. And it last week, if you guys remember, it was we're going to hey, we're going to get into postmodernism. We're going to try to understand that because it keeps coming up. Yeah. The topic keeps coming up. And um, I did I did the Foucault episode to bore everyone to tears. You guys remember that? And then Kyle and I got together and we're like, let's do Derrida together. It was a perfect episode for it, and then Kyle di- up and disappears yeah. and leaves me. And I was, and he was like, "Look, I might be able to come back." And I was like, "What do I do? Do I do this episode by myself?" But listen, I only got a window because sure. at some point my wife and kids get back, and I have responsibility again. So yeah, I had to do it. Yeah, yeah. No, we. Uh, my fiance. I'm drawing a blank right now. My fiance Chelsea's mom. Her dog died, and it's, it, it, you know, my grandma just died, and I was really upset about that, but I feel like I was almost more upset about it, because she was a puppy, man. Yeah. It's just sad. Like, just the whole situation was really sad, but... Speaking of puppies, um, we were just talking earlier before the podcast started about how a dog is, when, especially your dog, <clears throat> when a new person comes over, and how excited the dog is. And it's oh, yeah. it's one of the most wonderful things to witness in the world is a as an excited dog like a well tempered dog that just wants to fucking love you so hard oh, yeah. against your will it doesn't matter <clears throat> and you, you, your dog is big so it's like slobber and muscle and I'm just gonna force it on you with love and you, oh, yeah. and you and you can't help but appreciate it and you're covered in slime and you know yeah he's a good boy he's a little uh, excitable we'll say. Well, the thing I brought up to, uh, when we were talking about that earlier was that I just wish everybody was like that. Yeah. 
So imagine you're sitting at home, <clears throat> you get a knock on the door, it's the Jehovah Witnesses or whatever, they're, they're just randomly stopping by to make sure you know about our Lord and Savior, and you're that excited to see a stranger. You're like, come in, come in, would you like a kiss? You just would you like some tea? Just run around in the front yard with them. Just run around with old hands and spin around in the front yard. Oh yeah, okay, this yep. is going to be one of those episodes. Yep. But that's good, because we're going we're gonna to be talking about some deep shit, we might as well have a little fun doing it. Deep shit, you say? I think so. Right. Although, let me ask you this question. What? So we got a little bit into postmodernism with Foucault, with Derrida, and you went through the notes that we put together for Deleuze, so you've got some of that stuff, you know, tinkling around in your brain cavity. Um, what? What are you? What is, what's your take on postmodernism? Like, in a nutshell, what's your take on like, you know, um, Jordan Peterson's re- reluctance and resistance to it? Does the truth match the, you know, the fantasy that we had about postmodernism before we actually cracked the book to figure out what they're actually talking about? Yeah. I mean, you got anything to open this thing up? Um, I, I, I still wouldn't say that I know a ton about postmodernism. Me too. Um, so it's hard to like, it's like, you know, succinctly sum up uh, postmodernism. It's like, I just don't know that I can really. But um, well, I did, will did say... Did anything surprise you or did anything like... Well, I like parts of it. Like, uh, I, I can't remember if we talked about this on the podcast before no. I left or or if we, this was off. But, um, like, you were we were talking about... Well, in your podcast, you were talking about postmodernism and uh, Foucault and... The, uh, the impulse to, like, destroy, you know, like, to destroy social... Yeah. What's the word I'm looking for? Institutions, yeah. Yes, institutions. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I kind of like that, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> no, that's interesting. So, yeah. So, so for the people who maybe don't remember the last couple episodes on postmodernism, uh, the thing that Kyle's bringing up specifically with Foucault is that there's this, there's this thread that connects Derrida, Deleuze, and Foucault, all of them seem to think to to bring something new into the world that's never existed before is of unquestionable value. That's the way that, that it's it comes across to me, to bring something new into the world that's never existed before. And they seem to think that the best way of doing that is to question all of the things that you have never questioned before. Because maybe it's those things that you've never questioned before that are holding you back from being able to think in a new way or bring something new to the table or change yourself in a way that you never thought you you would, you know what I mean? Whatever it might mean. Um, And you'd be surprised how many things are like that. And dude, I was watching, here's another shout out to Matthew, I was watching Birth of the Dragon uh, yesterday, which is the WWE Bruce Lee movie. Okay. Well, um, it... If you haven't seen it, you should see it. Uh, it's, it's, I haven't even heard of it. Yeah, it came out in like 2017. Anyway, this is the thing that makes it cool. First of all, it's a WWE movie, so you know it's a little over the top. Did John Cena play Bruce Lee? Uh, no, some guy. I don't. I don't know who he is actually. Damn. 
Um, Missed opportunity. But the story is the same one. It's the same one that you know we grew up with from uh, from Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Okay. It was a movie near and dear to both of our hearts. Hell yeah. But, it, but, and that was the traditional romantic version of the story. The WWE version is it flips the script on you. It takes Bruce Lee and makes, instead of making him the hero, it makes him the villain. Oh, shit. And it, it takes Wong Jack Man, the Shaolin monk guy that comes over from China to, to whoop his ass, uh, it makes him the hero because he's the noble one. He's, he's, he's every bit as good as Bruce, he's but the, he's the noble one. It's not this Hollywood, you Ex- know. Exactly. And he says something. I like it. It's, <laughs> you should watch it, man. You should watch it. And he says something. He says, Bruce Lee says, style is a prison. Style is a prison, he says. And what he's saying, what he's trying to describe is uh, like the whole, like the whole tenet of mixed martial arts today. It's like if you get committed to a style, you will become inflexible. Mm-hmm. You will become unable to think. You'll be able to uh, unable to overcome something new because you're fixed. Yep. That's what Derrida means. When, or excuse me, that's what Foucault means when he says that. When he says that institutions and assumptions and traditions are a prison. And we have to tear them down so we can be free. If you want to be free, be free. Right, Kyle? Absolutely. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me. I don't necessarily know that I agree that creating something that has never existed is, like, inherently good. I don't know that I believe that. Because you can create you can create bad stuff. You sure as shit can. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen the movie The Quick and the Dead? Terrible movie. I don't know that I have, Terrible film. You could create that terrible shit. Yeah. Someone did. Somebody apparently. did. Who's in it? A bunch of good people. That's the thing. It's got it's got Leonardo DiCaprio. I think it's got Russell Crowe. Oh, yeah, it's got Sharon yeah, Stone. Do, it's got Gene yeah, Hackman. I see that. It's got a bunch of people. I liked it. And it's western and it's terrible. I liked it. But the, yeah, but it, but but, but, but point taken. I didn't particularly. You can make bad shit. Yeah, true. New doesn't mean good. And I had the same objection to Foucault. I'm like, dude, really? Yeah. And and you know what it made me think of is like the time. Because those guys all died. Morris in, Day in the time. <laughs> Morris Day in the time. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, those guys all died in like the um, the eighties. <clears throat> so, oh, some of them lived a little longer than that. I think Deleuze might have. No, he committed suicide. We'll get there. We'll Spo- get there. Spoiler alert. I'm, I lost my train of thought entirely. Yeah. Um, but I did prepare an intro to this, like because I wasn't sure if I w- if I was going to um, have to do this solo. And sometimes I like to have a pre-written intro and, and conclusion. Sure. Because conclusions are super duper hard to come up with on the fly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's see. I'm going to open up um, our Deleuze conversation with, well, a, a little bit of boring stuff actually first. So this is just some stuff from Wiki for the most part and just some background stuff <clears throat> that's important to know. Um, so this guy was born in 1925. He died in 1995. This is uh, this is Deleuze that we're talking about. Giles, Giles. How do you say his name? I thought it was. See, this is a confusing thing. I thought that it was Michelle, and this was Jill, and that they were both women. <laughs> All right, uh, but I think it's Jill. Gilles. Yeah. Gilles. Gilles Deleuze. That does sound super French. Oh, yeah. Something about these people being French. Makes you not like them. <laughs> it, it makes you not like them. And I don't know. That's such a strange phenomenon, by the way. It's like, I don't know where it comes from. The hatred, the hatred the for the French. Because they saved our ass in the American Revolution, and we returned the favor in the Second World War. It's like, what? Is that what it is? 
Like, we saved you better than you saved us? Is that what we're trying to tell them? I don't know. Why do we hate the French so much? Yeah. Because they're because the French Revolution was like the like the um, less successful cousin of the American Revolution from a freedom perspective? I don't know. I think it has something to do with the fact that the French... I think it's the perfect storm with France and America because both countries have this air of superiority. Mm. You know, like oh. we think we're the, Americans think that America is the best place in the world. That's right. You know, and I'm sure that French people feel the same way. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You know what that reminds me of is when I was in when I was a freshman in high school. The we had two middle schools, and they came together oh, yeah. in the freshman building, and it was a freshman building. There were no other high school kids. It wasn't like. You, when you are a freshman in every other school in, the, in America and you start in high school and you're the little fish in the big pond again, mm-hmm. it wasn't like that. Everybody was the same age. So it's not like you're getting held in check by all the older kids, you know, because they, they're not there. It's just you. You're running the show. And these two middle schools come together and it's like the, the popular kids from one middle school and the popular kids from the other middle school had like a... had like, like a, the Jets and the Sharks. It had like a Ragnarok situation where the gods had to do battle. Yeah. Um, I don't know why. Were there fights? No, but it was really interesting. Like, I, I wonder, like, if a psychologist could just have sat there and like witnessed all the interactions. Because what happened was they had to figure out what the synthesis, what the new order was going to be. Yeah. The hierarchy had to be shuff, shuffled around, and the pecking order had to be reestablished. And it happened on all kinds of different levels at once. It happened with the girls. It happened with the boys. It happened with the you know the jocks. It happened. It happened with the different the different groups within. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was like an yeah. interesting psychological thing to have witnessed. Hierarchies within hierarchies, man. Hierarchies within hierarchies. Like ma- well, is it like the Matrix? I think it might be. Or is it like Inception? It's definitely it's like both. <laughs> it's like the Matrix, man. It seems to me like your mic is a. Uh... I think it's. I think I need to maybe turn it. Turn it. Maybe lift is it that up. That better. Oh, that's much yeah, better. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry about that, you guys. All right. So. So the joke Kyle was making about uh, Michel Foucault. Uh, that his, it's not uh, a joke. I thought that they were women. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I do remember what I was get, getting at earlier that I got off of, which was uh, that like I'm imagining these guys being um, super influential in the 80s because they were writing in the 60s. By the time they got their followers you know, uh, in positions of importance in the world, it would have been right around the 80s. And I look at how these people like Michel Foucault and uh, Derrida thought and, and the stuff they said. And it's like, it's like they're trying to be edgy. They're trying, you know, it's like when, when Michel Foucault says that he wants to bring novel new things in the world. Um, he's, he's doing that by, by trying to be edgy, by trying to say things that nobody will say or do things that nobody will do. Um, and it and it reminds me of, it reminds me of the time. It reminds me of like when I think of the '80s, I think of like terrible, uh, I think of like terrible abstract art, okay, colorful geometric shapes, and yeah. you know I think I just think of like that was the era. It was the in-your-face, you know, giant cell phone, uh, you know, white white suit coat kind of era. To me, it was like big hair bands and just. Everything was like fucking way too much, you know? Yeah. And I think that's what postmodernists were. Way too much. And it seems like they're, they're doing it on purpose. And I don't know that that would have been obvious then, but in retrospect, you know, from my position, looking back at them, I'm like, you guys, 
were trying way too hard to be edgy to, because that's all they wanted to do was to be new. Yeah. I don't know if you got that from it or not. Um, I don't know that I got it from it, but you laying it out that way, I mean, I could see it. You know, I, I also kind of wonder if maybe they were doing it intentionally, being over the top, you know? Yeah, you definitely get that too. It's like a, it's like a um, hipster type of a vibe that you get from these guys where you can definitely see... It wouldn't be surprising to me at all to to to, um, to learn how all of this stuff might have been being said ironically. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, that's the kind of vibe I also get from the these postmodernists. Yeah. All right. So anyway, Deleuze. Anyway, born in twenty five, dies in ninety five. Um, his philosophy has been called neo Spinozism. 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 That, that's a, that's a word Kyle tried to say on our Spinoza episode. Oh, and then also French Nietzscheanism. Yeah. Well, why has it got to be French? Why can't it just be a, a neo Nietzschean or it Nietzschean was during Nietzsche's French period? <laughs> that, to me, that seems funny. Yeah, it is weird. It's actually, honestly, to say something like French Nietzscheanism is a very postmodern thing because what you've done is you've created this novel new category that you can now put Deleuze into. Yeah. And that didn't exist until you said French Nietzscheanism. Now well, it exists. I do wonder if maybe it did, though. Maybe there's, like, a school of French philosophers who, like, all had influential takes on Nietzsche. I, I have no idea. I'm just, like, spitting <clears throat> Oh, you might be right, but it's still, it's a post hoc thing. It's like, suppose there's three or four of those guys over mm-hmm. in, a, in a relatively, you know, um, short period of time. You're like, oh, they must have all been influenced by each other or they've been influenced by the same guy. Let's put them in a category. Let's create this new category yeah. called French Nietzscheans, and we'll put them in it. Yeah, yeah. That's a very postmodern thing to do, man. Because you're creating something new, a new concept. Yeah. All right. Deleuze was interested in film. So some of the quotes that come up, and I didn't write many of them down, I don't think, but some of the quotes that come up are about uh, uh, movies. He seems to really like movies and uh, being able to being able to do things in film that you can't do in real life or to, to be able to... Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't exactly know how I would describe it, but there's. But he definitely seems to have an interest in film and the possibilities that that film and special effects and that sort of stuff has on on influencing society or whatever. Yeah. Um, every single one of these postmodernists had some interest in um, psychoanalysis. Uh, so they they're, they'll talk a little bit about Freud or Jung or a little bit about that. Surprised me to see that they had interest in it, but every single one of them didn't seem like they were speaking well about it. It seemed like they were kind of negative on the topic of psychoanalysis, like it was bullshit, especially Freud, which, you know, fair enough. Yeah. But Deleuze wrote um, with another guy, a guy named Felix Gutierri, I don't know how you say his name, um, who, was a, who was a psychologist, who was a psycho, psychoanalyst himself, mm-hmm. which is interesting, and because none of them seem to speak well of it, which, you know, there's probably a story there. I just didn't, I didn't crack it open. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I I personally have my doubts about um, psycho psychoanalysis. You know, what do you I th- mean? You think about it like, go like, ahead. like dream interpretation, like like uh, you know, that's the kind of shit that you would read in a uh, what do you call it? The newspaper, the horoscopes. Yeah, is that how you? Is that the spin or maybe maybe kind of, but almost. You know. Trusting the science is a big thing right now. People act like psychoanalysis and stuff like that is science, but it's not really. 
True. I mean, it's um, everyone's different and everyone and, and trying to like apply these concepts like writ large to mm. lots of people. I just don't know. It's funny. You know. <clears throat> it's funny you say that because that's going to be one of the things I'm going to gravitate towards on this Deleuze episode. Oh, okay. It's something that he says that reminds me of what you just said. All right. So questioning psychoanalysis <clears throat> and saying that, like, look, how can you take, like, a, like an archetypal image that somebody says that they saw in a dream or a fantasy and, a, and a pretend or assume that it means something similar to somebody else's dream or to somebody else's myth. It's like, this came out of your head and your imagination at your point in time. It's completely unique to your circumstances. How could you possibly take any meaning from the images in this dream just because they they resemble some some quote-unquote archetype? You know, that can completely understand that, that argument. Um, the way that Jung describes um, archetypes is interesting. He describes them like, like a field of association, like a field of meaning. So you can imagine like a, like an atom and the electrons are spinning around the atom. That's like a field. The electrons are like a field of meaning. And for archetypes, they're like associated images. And it might be like, you know, the, the mother image and the old woman image and the witch and the ocean and the cow and the crescent moon. And, you know, there's this whole field of images that are associated with this thing. And that's how you're able to, you're able to piece out uh, or flush out the meaning of a, of a dream or something that way. And um, Deleuze talks in a very similar way, not about meaning, but we'll get there. Um, and he relates it even to an atom, and I and it's interesting. We'll get there. All right. Um, so uh, the other thing I wanted to say about Deleuze is that the time he lived between twenty five and ninety five. So it's similar to we, we talked about with Foucault living through the Second World War. Seventy years. That's a good long haul. It's a good long haul. You know. <laughs> they lived through the Second World War and participated in the French Resistance. I don't know how much, you know, fighting Deleuze actually saw, but that's the time he lived in. If you lived in Paris, which I think he did, I mean, you guys seen pictures of Paris after the Second Crazy. World War. You can you imagine living through that shit? That would be insane. I don't have any idea. Imagine just like you know, Cleveland gets ta- taken over by Canada. There's like Can- Canadian flags hanging around. <laughs> I think Crazy. it's I think it's worse than that. I think in order for us to understand what that must have been like for Deleuze, we'd have to go to Iraq and Afghanistan and ask people what it's like to have to, oh, yeah. to have their cities bombed to smithereens, and mm-hmm. that's what it was like. Uh, anyway, so that's the that's the time that he lived. Um, he had to have a lung removed in the '60s, in the late '60s, Ugh. and then he ends up he ends up committing suicide by throwing himself out of his apartment building window. Defenestration. Mm. A, there's a word for when you throw someone out of a window. Shit, say the word again. Defenestrate. Ooh. The more you know. The more you know. Uh, did you get that um, uh, Reading Rainbow reference in my Foucault episode? I don't remember it off the top of my head. So Foucault's always arguing uh, about power. Oh, right? yes, I do remember, <laughs> yeah. So Foucault's always arguing about power and the relationship between knowledge and power. Yeah. And so I named the episode Knowledge is Power, no, not you, LeVar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> LeVar Burton from the Reading Rainbow. Knowledge is power. Yes, indeed. All right, so um, there's another little bit that Wiki talks about, and they, it mentions a quote by a guy named James Miller, who I don't know who he is, actually. But old Jim? Presu- old Jim. Presumably Jim some, somebody in the know about Deleuze personally. And he said something a little bit damning about Deleuze, which is that he 
he betrayed little visible interest in actually doing many of the risky things he so vividly conjured up in his lectures and writing. (laughs) He was married with two children and outwardly lived the life of a conventional French professor. So this is somebody who, like all the other postmodernists, wants to shake things up, wants to rock the boat, wants to do crazy things. You remember when Michel Foucault, I think it was Foucault, or maybe it was Derrida, when he said it was good for men to be, for people to be dirty and bearded and for men to dress like women and women to dress like men. That's yeah. the kind of shit he, they're talking about. Shake it up. Do something new. Do something unusual. You know, it can't just be, you know what it reminds me of? I know I'm doing a lot of talking, but it, remind, <laughs> it reminds me of, as an adult, you know, working nine to five and comparing like a year in, in your life and your memory to what it was like when you were a teenager and everything was new and you were doing new shit and you were engaged learning new things. Oh yeah. It's like whole weeks and months go by and they blur into nothing as an adult and you can't even remember what, what did I do in January? I don't even fucking know. That's what January is like because every day is the same. And what, and that's kind of what I think is there, there's maybe some justification to Foucault saying Shake it up. Do something different. Bring something new into the world. Because if you don't, your whole life is going to fade it like that into a black, you know, nothing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think, I don't know if this is a good time for this or not. Maybe the, Bring it up. Maybe the end would be better. But I think if you take postmodernism and you're like, I'm following this ideology to a T. Mm. This is it. Um, I just, I mean, I don't think that's a good idea. But I think that... Uh, there's value in, you know, there's value in it, but you just like, it can't be, so it can't be like religious, you know? Oh yeah. Just like, I don't think, well, I don't know. I, I was going to say, I don't think religions should be religious, but you know. So a lot of religious people and a lot of philosophers, including these guys talk about how important discipline is. Yeah. And, and, and what like Jordan Peterson would say about it is that it's the structure that discipline provides. So like you'll hear people talk about um, games and they're like, games are only fun because of the rules. It's because of the limitations that makes a game fun. You have to know the rules. You have to figure out creative ways of working around the rules. That's what's fun about a game. Yeah. Otherwise you're just running around. Otherwise you're running around on God mode playing doom and it's no fun and it's no fun. Only certain people are going to get that reference. I don't. I don't get it really. <laughs> All right, Doom. So I said, put yourself on God mode. It's, so in the old days, in the old days, the first person shooter games like like whatever uh, Torok or something, um, you oh, yeah. on the PC games, you, you could put in a code. You'd be in God mode. You oh, couldn't die. See, I never you had infinite either. ammo. You could run around and kill everyone. They couldn't kill you. And and you find out like that's what you want. You're like, oh, I can go around and kill everybody. I don't have to worry about getting killed. That sounds like so much fun. Play that for 20 seconds. You're like, fuck this game. Yeah. When there are no rules, it's not fun anymore. Yeah. So you brought this up, and I think this is brilliant you said thanks you said <laughs> you said you can't follow postmodernism to a t yeah. and what 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 dawned on me when you said that is that postmodernism as a philosophy is a structure oh yeah it's a prison like foucault said we should we got to get out of yeah. we got to get out of all these prisons but i got this new prison it's shiny and new let me talk about it it's the called postmodernism prison. yeah oh shit way to go michelle all right, so apparently Deleuze was a little bit of a hypocrite. He wanted to live in this fucking sci-fi world, um, but but wouldn't risk doing any of the sci-fi shit himself, apparently. Sci-fi. 
there's a couple of things, a couple of words, concepts. You remember when we talked about Derrida, we talked about difference and uh, that shit. Yeah. He's got words like this. Deleuze has, has coined some words. The ones that I'm going to talk about don't come up all that much, but I want to talk about them because they actually struck me as super, super interesting. He has a concept called eminence that he brings up eminence. in comparison to transcendence. Okay. Eminence is the here and now. It means to, the thing that exists, your consciousness or whatever. It's what exists. It's what, what's immediately available to you, your experience. But he, also, he also describes it as embeddedness, which is interesting. I wonder, you know the song Eminence Front by The Who? No, no. It's a good song. <laughs> what, um, what comes to mind? It's just, I wonder if that's, if that's about that. I wonder if I'm even, if that's the word they're saying in that. I think it's called <laughs> eminence front. Uh, well, I mean, eminence is a word. It's, an, it's, a, it's a word beyond this. Yeah, it yeah. has its own definition, but he's using it to mean existence and, and, and embeddedness. And that's something that goes back. We've talked about it before, but it goes back to like the way Heidegger talks about we find ourselves beings. You know, we're human beings. We find ourselves that way. We don't have a choice. We just we exist as a being yep. of some kind, and then we also find ourselves existing within being. That's the world. That's existence. So we're beings within being. We're born into that, and that's a you might say that's a structure that we're that we're we don't have any power over. We're stuck in because we're born into it. We can never get out of it. So we're beings in being. And this a concept of imminence, he, he, he talks about that as embeddedness. I think that's what he means. We're a being embedded in being. And um, that, so when, when he says ex- imminence, that just take that to mean reality, the things that exist. Just take that to mean that. Okay. And then he, and transcendence is it the opposite of imminence. It's that which is beyond. So you've got the here and now, what exists, and then this idea of transcendence, which is like a hypothetical whatever might exist outside of it, you and I might call that the Terminator 2 substance, the liquid metal that uh, right. of, of objective reality. Transcendence. All right, then he, he uses this word plane of eminence, and it, it just means the place of existence, right? Eminence is existence, so the plane of eminence is reality. It's a, as a place, like where we are right now. Sure. Um, so material reality conceived as a coherent whole, uh, that kind of thing. And then he brings this word up, and this is what got me so interested in it. Remember, this, these, are, these are atheists. These guys are so modern, they're postmodern, Kyle. Yeah, fuck modernity. They don't, they don't believe in God. They don't believe in, they don't believe in shit. They're, they're so edgy. They don't believe in anything. They're just, you know, that's how they p- present themselves. But Deleuze brings this idea up called pure eminence. Pure eminence. And what a fancy way of trying to get around saying a very shorter and simpler word that we all know well, God. And it goes like this. Pure eminence is a formless, self-organizing process which always qualitatively differentiates from itself. What? Exactly. So you've got this confusing definition of something that's formless. And, and I said, and I said, my notes are, well, that sounds a lot like God. You're not fooling anyone. But then I said, how does something formless differentiate from anything, I'd like to know? So he's talking about something that doesn't have a form that constantly transforms and becomes something new. Yeah. Well, that seems to be, well, very abstract. I'm not sure what he's ex- describing exactly, but it's something that you can see conceptualizes or you know, turns into a visual image, this idea of novelty, like Foucault's talking about. Something that's formless, you can't define it, and it's always changing into something new. 
It's, it's, it's like the novel. It's this Terminator 2 substance that's just constantly changing yeah. and becoming something new. And this is what he calls pure eminence. Pure eminence, a.k.a. God. Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah. And it, it'll come up in a, in a minute, so we'll get there. Now, this is something my wife pointed out, and I want to I bring this up. So, so all of these guys were influenced by Nietzsche. Remember, remember this guy is supposed to be a French Nietzschean, right? And Nietzsche said something um, that surprised me to learn that he said. He said Socrates was ugly. We've talked about this before, but just to explain. He said Socrates... So it's like, look, Socrates is a hugely important philosopher because everything Plato ever said came from the mouth of Socrates. And remember what we said about Plato. Everything's a footnote to Plato. So who could be more important in the history of thought than, so than Socrates? And Nietzsche reads Socrates, reads Plato, and he says... You know, I've read it, yeah, I, I hear what he has to say, but the man was ugly, and he can just write him off because he's ugly, and the idea is when you listen to Plato and he says, hey, might there be, might there be things behind our perceptions, the things that Kyle and I will talk about, potential, this Terminator 2 liquid metal shit, whatever that is, um, Plato will say, might there be things like that behind our perceptions, and he's going to call that the world of forms. So maybe the way things look, perceptions aren't important. What's it, what is important is whatever it is behind those perceptions, whatever objective reality is. And Nietzsche's like, well, you know, that's an interesting idea if it weren't coming from the lips of an ugly man. You would say that, Socrates. You would say perceptions aren't important because you're an ugly asshole. I'm handsome as shit with this giant mustache that I got, <laughs> Nietzsche. And Nietzsche was was very sickly, you know, and died young. And so, what could you what could you say about Nietzsche? You know, Nietzsche, uh, if you, like you listen to Jordan Peterson talk about Nietzsche, and he says that Nietzsche philosophizes with a hammer. Yeah, yeah, no shit. He he hits hard because he was a frail, sickly man that couldn't hit you hard if he wanted to, but he finds a way to hit you hard with his words. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You could do that with anybody. Well, my wife did that with these postmodernists in like two seconds. Yeah. I tried to explain to her what I was learning from them, and she was just like, um, she was like, yeah, what Foucault was gay. And I was like, oh, my God. My wife, my wife just did a fucking Nietzsche on him. She was like, <laughs> yeah, of course Foucault is going to say that the structures that hold you down need to be destroyed because he was gay in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't the structures be been, have been holding him down a little bit more than other people? And yep. if you were that guy, wouldn't you want to fucking rip those structures down? Yeah. Foucault was gay. Socrates was ugly. God damn, my wife hammered. He, she <laughs> nailed that one. And then the, and the other thing is that Deleuze, I think, was a religious atheist. And how confused and afraid must that guy have been? I said he was afraid of his own ideal. Um, so he had to make up crazy names for it. <laughs> Like pure eminence. Yes, it definitely. Yeah, I mean, like the, if you talk about the way Jordan Peterson talks about uh, an ideal, he says an ideal is a judge, and that's why Jesus comes back as a judge in the Bible. It's like Jesus is our savior. He's the guy that's dying for our sins in the Christian story. Why does he come back in the book of Revel in the book of Revelations as a judge, throwing people into eternal hell? Like that doesn't seem right. Why is Christ all, all of a sudden a judge? And Jordan Peterson's like, dude, you're thinking about it too hard. Listen, if Jesus is the perfect man, then he's a judge. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Because every time you look at the image of Jesus, every time you look at your little bracelet that says WWJD, you're going to be like, oh, I'm not as good as him. So, yeah, the ideal is a judge. judge. Yes, always been a judge. And so what Deleuze has done is he's taken that religious judge, that ideal, and he sort of like dehumanizes it and calls it pure eminence. You see what I mean? It's it's not a judge exactly anymore if it's pure eminence. What is pure eminence, though? We'll get there. Yeah, I mean, I know. Yeah, I don't know. I just think think it's goofy. Well, if if eminence is existence, what's pure existence? Just God. (laughs) Exactly, right? What what would you call it? You know, it's like, to me, if eminence is, is existence... And that's experience. I mean, there's no difference to me between the words experience and existence. Because we don't, we don't exist in any other way than through experience. So when you say pure eminence, what you're saying to me is pure consciousness. Consciousness that's not embodied, that's not held down by all of the constraints and confines uh, that, that these postmodernists think are somehow harmful to us. All the prisons that we exist within. And we'll talk about, we'll talk about that. It, it gets interesting. But it's everything from our, our language and our like, stereotypes all the way up to th- like saying what I said earlier, that being is one of these structures that we can't help but find ourselves in. And if only we could get out from under it, what, it, what would that even mean? then we could open up new doors to who knows what, what potential. If we could just get out from under this thing we call being, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of sounds like death to me. You know, it's like, we'll get there. We'll get there. All right. So I got a couple of quotes that I want to read to open this up because I really couldn't find a good place to put them anywhere else. And I thought maybe it would do it. It would let us introduce Deleuze, uh, his ideas. Okay. So here's the first one. He says, We are concerned only with thought, only with thinking. What is opposed to reason is thought itself. What is opposed to the reasonable being is the thinker himself. So what is opposed to reason is thought. And what is opposed to the reasonable being is the thinker. Why is reason opposed to thought? So this is what it seems like to me. It seems like... When he says uh, the reasonable being is opposed by the thinker, he's talking about the novel thinker. He's talking about the thinker is the person that can bring new ideas. The, re- the reasonable person is, is the person that is stuck under the structure of reason. Logic, it has to make sense. One plus one has to equal two for the reasonable person. But for the thinker, it could be, it could be whatever you want it to be. Sure. It's something like that. Okay. That's, kind of what, that's the gist as far as I can, I can see it. Well, I don't like that. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Um, oh, and I, I put here, I said, I wonder, I wonder if the force of reason uh, to Deleuze is like the order principle for Jordan, for Jordan Peterson. So you see, you, see you, have, um, you have reason, like, like, again, as the structure, as, as the scaffolding. So it's like, a, it's like order. Mm-hmm. So you've got this reason that's order, and then that means that the thinker is more like chaos. So Jordan Peterson would say you've got okay. order, you've got the order principle and the chaos principle. I'm, I wonder if that's what he's saying, something like that, where the thinker is chaos, where new ideas come from, and and reason and rationality is order. Got it. I don't that know. Makes sense. I don't know, but it's an idea. All right, here's quote number two. He says, "It is not the slumber of reason that engenders monsters; 
but vigilant rationality. What do you think of that? It is not the slumber of reason that engenders monsters, but vigilant rationality. Right, so it's not the unreasonable or the, and the irrational that make monsters. It's the rational and the, and the reasonable who become the monsters. Something like that. It's like you're not going to get rid of monsters through reason and rationality. What do you think? I think that's, uh, it sounds, I, I think I, I was confused because I read engenders as endangers. <laughs> so I'm still like trying to parse it out, to be honest with you. Well, you know what it reminds me of is, uh, well, to bring Jordan Peterson up again, fuck it. So Jordan Peterson, when he talks about um, fascism and he talks about how logical Nazism is or, or communism, it's like from a philosophical perspective, it's tight. Arguments are tight. The fact that it doesn't work in the real world doesn't, doesn't matter. The logic is super tight. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can have something that's completely logically consistent, that's rational, that's reasonable, and still terribly, terribly wrong. Yeah. And somehow it's like Deleuze and these postmodernists think that if you have a little bit of chaos in there, that it's, it's the antidote to order. Like Jordan says, order is the antidote to chaos. It's kind of like they're saying that you have to have a little chaos in there as the antidote to order because order can become terrible. Yeah, Order can become totalitarian. That's kind of an interesting idea. That is. Interesting. I like it. I wonder what Jordan Peterson would have to say about that. We should ask him. i got to remember. I'll tweet that to him. Um, that Deleuze... <laughs> that Deleuze uh, <laughs> Deleuze believes that uh, alright fuck it next quote alright belief is necessary excuse me belief is necessarily something false that diverts and suffocates effective production belief is necessarily something false what do you think of that um I don't know I mean I, I think that a lot of I guess I guess I can see that being true sometimes so a lot- maybe even all the time. <laughs> Belief is necessarily something false that diverts and suffocates effective production. Right. I mean, once you get to the second part of it, I definitely think it makes sense. And it reminds me of, like, the Q stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. You got, pe- got these people believing in Q, something that's never going to fucking happen. Yeah, th- this is an interesting one because, to me, it's something that should strike everybody as questionable right away it's like belief is false necessarily false you should immediately think okay that goes completely contrary to everything i've ever known and maybe that's on purpose like we're going to get your attention by saying something like that um and it makes you think it's like when we were reading those uh, those different asian philosophers and they say these re- like when we're t- reading about taoism they'll say some like obscure short little sentence but it really makes you think that's kind of what I think there's, this is tr- they're trying to do here by telling you belief is necessarily false. You're like, oh, what could that possibly mean? And to me, I'm just going off of what I know of the postmodernists, that if you believe something, it means that you don't question it, right? If you believe it, it could be wrong, and you're never going to question it. Mm. And that's the problem. So belief is, is necessarily something false just means that it's an unquestioned assumption and it needs to be questioned. I think Foucault would agree with that 100%. Okay. Um, see, and I said is dangerous according to Foucault. So it must be questioned and overcome. Belief is a constraint, something like that. All right. And so you can see how that makes sense. But I also am not sure exactly what it means. It's like if belief is something that's unquestioned, it kind of is a constraint. And if, and if, if something that I 
never think about and won't question. Maybe there's something to be to be learned there. Um, I don't know, man. Yeah, it's like it, it makes sense. But if I turn around and start questioning all my beliefs, what what happens? And I think Foucault and Deleuze and Derrida, they're like, yeah, what would happen? Let's yeah. let's sit back and see what will happen. It would be, it's going to be awesome. And I'm like, fuck, I don't know, man. If we if everyone starts questioning all our beliefs, it seems like everything grinds to a halt. You know? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know either. Uh, part part of you wants to see the show, doesn't it, Kyle? Well, yeah. I mean. So, I mean, it just depends on, I guess it just depends on the institutions you're talking about. I mean, I, I think that, yeah, I, I don't mind the idea of people destroying them. So the other thing that comes up when you say that is remembering that these guys lived through the 60s. Yeah. And I wonder if reality was something they were questioning. If these guys are doing psychedelics. They're questioning even reality. That's that's the question of uh questioning being that we talked about earlier that's another way of saying that you do psychedelics you start questioning reality like reality is a constraint that you Mm -hmm. if you can get out from under the possibilities are what crazy beautiful experiences geometric you know fractal geometry and just waves waves of emotion you know you know you know how those experiences are described yes indeed you know bliss you know yeah all right moving on This one's a little bit longer, unfortunately. I'm just going to read it. It says, oh, this is a good one. This is a good one. Listen to this one. I think this is a a good description of what I was trying to describe earlier when I said that these guys are like, they they want to seem edgy. Okay. Okay, so listen to this. It says, we sometimes go on as though people can't express themselves. In fact, they're always expressing themselves. The sorriest couples are those where the woman can't be preoccupied or tired without the man saying, what's wrong? (coughs) Say something. Radio and television have spread this spirit everywhere and we're riddled with pointless talk, (coughs) insane quantities of words and images. Stupidity's never blind or mute. So it's not a problem of getting people to express themselves, but of providing little gaps of solitude and silence in which they might eventually find something to say. Repressive forces don't stop people expressing themselves, but rather force them to express themselves. And I underline that because I think that's very true. Um, And it goes on. What a relief to have nothing to say. The right to say nothing. Because only then is there a chance of framing the rare thing that might be worth saying. What we're plagued by these days isn't any blocking of communication, but pointless statements. That's why arguments are such a strain why there's never any point arguing. You can't just tell someone that they're that what they're saying is pointless, so you tell them it's wrong. But what someone says is never wrong. The problem isn't that some things are wrong, but that they're stupid or irrelevant. That they've already been said a thousand times. What do you think, Kyle? Um, I just think... Like, towards the end there, I couldn't help but thinking just because something's been said a thousand times doesn't mean that it's not true. That's very true. It's a very good point. The things that you've heard a thousand times, like all those adages, those are things that are said a thousand times because they're so valuable that we can't allow ourselves to forget them. Yeah, and even though they're trite, when you hear them, you're still like, oh, yeah, that makes, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's that's true in my experience. You know, you know one that I use all the time that I, that's coming in handy 
practice makes perfect. Yeah. And I tell and I tell my daughters, you know, my my daughter's try, learning to write, and she's struggling with certain things, and I'm telling her practice makes perfect, yeah. and she believes me, and she's and she's practicing, and she's getting better, and it's beautiful to watch. Oh yeah. Beautiful to watch. But yeah. that's one of those things. Just because it's been said a thousand times doesn't make it so fucking true. Why would you want that one to be false? Exactly. You know? That this I think is the critique of postmodernism. Exactly mm-hmm. that. Yeah. This is like a to me it seems like an exercise in jerking off your your brain. It's like, you know, to All some right. <laughs> just like to some degree to some degree, this is a mental exercise. A lot of this, yeah. And if you don't, if you don't ask yourself practical questions like you just asked, like what's the good of questioning that type of a, of a statement? Uh, you know, I wonder what would Deleuze say about that. Yeah. Well, I, maybe if we don't practice, things will work out better. Like, okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> all right. You never know until you try. I really want that brain surgeon who who doesn't practice. Who does, <laughs> you know. How do you practice for brain surgery? That is a great question. You just do it. Yeah, I think you you probably cut up you know cadaver brains and animal brains and cadaver brains. Yeah, and then you probably watch other people doing it for a while and then scary dude. And you do it for a while while the experienced guy stands over your shoulder and goes, "No, nope, don't touch that." No. Okay. Uh, probably something like that, I guess. Right. So, do you pick up on the tone of this? Uh, this is what I'm pointing out, and this is this is kind of what I said when I brought up um, you, when you and I were talking about this off the air, and I was I brought up Hunter S. Thompson uh, mm-hmm. as an example. Like the the tone of the way this guy talks about, he's like that we're we're bombarded with images and words, and nobody has anything to, new or important to say. It's mm-hmm. like everybody just prattles off nonsense, and we're and we're filling our brains with nothing. And you know, it's it, it's just it's the tone of it is like critical, yeah, of the masses for sure. You know, and that is an interesting place for these people to be because they're because they're sympathetic to communism all of them mm-hmm. somebody who wants communism probably shouldn't be deriding the masses you know what i mean it seems like a dangerous thing yeah i guess i mean a lot of these people are like that though you know like a lot of these people who talk about and, and I mean, this really is obvious in a lot of these like really rich politician types. It's like they talk about how much they care about the poor, the common man, but they seem to have nothing but contempt for them. You know, like it's like they gross them out. It's exactly. like they think that they're yucky. Exactly. You know. Yeah, that's a great point. So, what, what do you, what do you think about this line I I underlined when we're ta- when we're thinking about today's world? Repressive forces don't stop people expressing themselves but rather force them to express themselves yes repressive forces don't stop people from expressing themselves rather they force them to express themselves so you have somebody telling you you can't say that and we're going to deplatform you and we're going to you know what i mean all of the censorship and shit we're seeing now the more the powers that be say you cannot say that you cannot talk about that the more people are like Fuck off. Yeah. I will talk about that. I wasn't gonna, but I'm going to now, motherfucker. Absolutely. That's how I feel, you know? Yeah. And Deleuze is just pointing it out. I think that's legit. Mm-hmm. Yep. See, that's like a lot of the stuff that, like I said, you just can't follow it to a T because a lot of the stuff that's in here I like. Um, you know, like I think that a lot, he says that we don't have anything original or new to say. And I think that that's true. I mean, a lot of the stuff that, 
like pop culture is just not good. The and not even pop culture, but just like a lot of what our culture is becoming, it's like temporary shit. It's stuff that's not gonna last. It's like designed not to last. Mm. You're right. It's like insignificant. You're right. It is designed not to last. That's an interesting observation, man. Nothing is designed to last anymore, not even the culture. Mm-hmm. And that has something to do with the fact that the culture has to adapt. I mean, it, it's, it's the, the culture really is the thing we use to adapt. So as our environment changes socially and you know, technologically, it's changing like gangbusters, mm-hmm. and we can't keep up with it. So our culture has to, it's funny, our culture has to be like a amorphous blob that can just, you know, it can never be fixed because it's changing so fast that it has to continue to adapt. It's like a fucking amoeba. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, man. Yep. Hmm. Interesting. All right. I got a couple others here before we before we get into it. <laughs> All right. So this one I put in here for a reason. What do you think of this? He says, I have no admiration for culture. I have no reserve knowledge, no provisional knowledge. And everything that I learn, I learn for a particular task. And once it's done, I immediately forget it. So that if, if 10 years later I have to get involved with something close to or directly within the same subject, I would have to start again from zero, with some few exceptions. So, I mean, I completely understand that. Mm-hmm. Every, every like difficult test I've ever had to take has been like that. It's like, as soon as that test is over, I dump 99% of that information. So, I agree. But he... What it sounds to me like he's saying here is, because he begins by saying, I have no admiration for culture, which seems like something that I would never say. Like, it seems like a, like a sh- ungrateful thing to say, really. Uh, but then he explains it. He's like, look, because, you know, because I don't really have any reserve knowledge. I don't hold culture as knowledge. If I have to use culture, I'll use it, but then I'm going to forget it tomorrow. That's kind of how he's painting it. And someone like Jordan Peterson would say that culture is the wisdom of our ancestors. It's everything. It's, it's the reason we can speak, because our ancestors learned it. It's the reason we can use tools, because our ancestors learned it. They passed it on to us through our culture. That's, how, that's why we can speak and use tools and do all the shit we can do. That's, that's, the reason we, we, that's the reason all of our technology works, and we can do what we can do, because of culture. And Deleuze is saying... I have no admiration for it. You know, the same yeah. pe- the same people that just want something novel and new are saying all of the old stuff. I got no admiration for it. I just put it put it right in a bag and throw it away. I just wonder what that means, though, that he has no admiration for anything for he doesn't appreciate anything that came before him. He doesn't like uh, like there wasn't like a book that he read when he was a kid that he has like some kind of. You know? Well, it's interesting that you say that because clearly he, clearly he had admiration for Nietzsche. Sure. Because the next two quotes are about Nietzsche. Yeah. He says Nietzsche speaks of the eternal joy of becoming, that joy which in, which includes even joy in destroying. Did you get that? Yeah. Uh, the affirmation of passing away and destroying, which is the decisive feature of Dionysian philosophy. And then he, and then the last quote is connected. He says. The masters, according to Nietzsche, are the untimely, those who create, who destroy in order to create, not to preserve. Not to preserve. 
So what he is appealing to from Nietzsche, what he identifies with from Nietzsche, is this joy of becoming, which which is which is a joy even in destroying, because that's what causes something new to to have an opportunity to exist by destroying the old. Mm-hmm. And again, he says not to preserve. So it doesn't matter what we're create, what we're destroying. It just matters what we're bringing what we're bringing new to to the table. Gotcha. What do you think of that, man? Um, these are smart guys, man. Does it seem like it seems pretty half baked for all these smart guys to say? Yeah, I don't know, man. I like. I think it just takes some kind of. I don't know what they're, I'm trying to think of a word. Temperance is what I'm saying, but mm. it just doesn't make sense. But like, you know, I think that uh, that kind of an attitude, and like I, I've said it a couple times during this, I like the idea of I think that there are institutions that definitely do hold us down you know mm-hmm. um, and I think that getting rid of those would be good uh, I just think that it takes some kind of discretion I guess you know like, but I mean that in and of itself it, it, it like implies some kind of a hierarchy mm-hmm. you know that you're choosing you know yep. I don't know no 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 and um, hierarchy plays into this this is important it's coming but you know what that reminds me of when you bring it up is um, uh, what's going on today with the uh, gifted programs. I think they're in New York. Did you see this? They've done away with the gifted programs in New York. No, I didn't know so that. So if you're one of those children that has a high IQ or is really capable, you ordinarily would have these classes you could go to where you could you know, really excel. But they said there aren't enough minority kids in those classes, so they're racist and they have to go. Wow. So... If, if that's the institution you're tearing down, the gifted programs, you really have to start asking yourself some, some deeper questions, man. Yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty sad. Mm. It's terribly, terribly sad. Terribly, paradoxically idiotic. I, I mean, oh, I, I... Yeah, I mean, now you just have these kids who... I mean, they're... They're the smarter kids, you know? They're the ones who pick things up quicker, and you, now they're, like, stuck It shouldn't with, ma- with me in, in, in math class when I was in high school. <laughs> I just, like, didn't... I, I just wasn't paying attention, you know? It, but, it, but now I get to... I'm, like, holding everyone up, mm-hmm. you know? It's just fucked up. It shouldn't matter what color the kids are in the gifted program. Yeah. It shouldn't matter, for Christ's sake... If you're making Unless it matter, there are too many white ones. I mean, you know. If you're making it matter, then you're a racist. That's that's all I'm going to say on that. All right. The next section is Deleuze on power, because when Foucault talks about power, it's like everything he's talking about for the most part. Deleuze has some stuff to say on power, but not as much as I expected. Yeah. And Deleuze is a little bit later, but, um, but let, me, uh, let me start with the power quotes, and then we'll, go, uh, we'll just talk about them. Power. All right, he says, Christianity taught us to see the eye of the Lord looking down upon us. Such forms of knowledge project an image of reality at the expense of reality itself. They talk figures and icons and signs, but fail to perceive forces and flows. They bind us to other realities, and especially the reality of power as it subjugates us. Their function is to tame, and the result is the fabrication of docile and obedient subjects. 
So I know there's a lot to that, but he's saying Christianity taught us that the eyes of the Lord are looking down upon us. So, so we have this fabricated idea of God looking down, judging us to keep our behavior in line. We have this imaginary judge that's floating around over, over us all the time, keeping an eye on us so that we have this imaginary, you know, force keeping us from, from behaving in, inappropriately, let's say. And he says that that type of knowledge, to believe that God is looking down on you, it projects an image of reality that isn't true. You think the world is a certain way and it's not. That's what he's saying. And he says that they, he's talking about religions, Christianity, that they talk figures and icons and signs, but fail to perceive forces and flows. So it's like we're talking about figures and icons and signs. We're talking about um, images, symbols, you know, like God, like the, like the cross, like whatever. We're talking about those things, but we don't see the power in those things and what that power's doing. That's kind of what he seems to be implying. It says it binds us to other realities, um, and especially the reality of power as it subjugates us. So that's a little bit harder for me to understand, but he's basically saying that this imaginary idea of God or this belief in religion or religious ideas that it um, binds us to this fake reality that subjugates us. So I guess that kind of, you can kind of see that, you can kind of see that. Yeah, I mean, if you believe something that is completely untrue, you know, th- that that's kind of a prison of your own making, in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, it's like in the old days, um, like we got stories of the boogeyman, and you wonder where they come from. I'll tell you where they come from. Come from a time when kids playing in the village by the edge of the forest might mean that they get killed by a fucking jaguar or they get they get taken by a lion or something. So parents say there's a boogeyman out there in the unknown. So you have to be careful on the edge of of order. Mm-hmm. You got to be careful, and it's easier to explain that to a kid that there's an evil bad guy out there okay. than it is to explain to them. You know, all of the intricacies of the dangers they're facing. Goddamn chupacabras, man. <laughs> Goddamn chupacabras. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so you know, and that's the same thing. It's like, like God's always watching. It's like the boogeyman's always, always out there. You know, it's like that's kind of what, uh, you know, what he's getting at when he says that it subjugates us. But the question is, is that bad? Right, like if I'm being subjugated by this imaginary power that I've put over myself to keep to keep me behaving, and behaving that way makes me more successful in life. It it, you know, it's like right, I'm not lying, cheating, and stealing, so I'm making friends, I'm getting along, I'm, uh, you know what I mean? Like, is that subjugation? Right, I I agree that it's be that it's a structure that's being imposed on me, but it's being imposed on me from my ancestors. And they're, they're, they're just me in an earlier time. It's, just, yeah. it's like somebody came back to the future and warned me about things I shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. It's just me from fucking back then, as far as I can tell. That's what culture is. Yeah. That's, that's what Deleuze doesn't have any respect for. Yeah. Um, I was going to say something. I forget it. It slipped Sorry, my mind. man. I, oh, get, I right. get going. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, and then he says that the result is the fabrication of docile and obedient subjects, and so that's something that you might have less objections to: is the idea that religion 
uh, is a power that keeps us docile and obedient. Sure. One of many. One of many. Okay. Um, and again, you, you, you can see the truth in that. There, there is some truth in that. I just wonder if the subjugation that he, he's putting it, like we're, we're forcing this on ourselves and it's bad. I'm saying we're forcing it on ourselves, but maybe it's not bad. Yeah. Maybe it's not fucking bad. I guess it just depends on how you define subjugation, which is a very postmodern rep- response. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That's interesting. All right. Here we go. Um, the various forms of education or normalization imposed upon an individual consist in making him or her change points of subjectification, always moving towards a higher, nobler one in closer conformity with the supposed ideal. In other words, a subject bound to statements in conformity with a dominant reality. So this is wordy, but basically what this is, this is the same thing that um, I believe it was Derrida uh, or maybe Foucault said about the idea of normal. It's like once the idea of normal is brought into the world, it becomes a judge against everyone. It's like you, there's this imaginary middle ground and all of you guys are failing to, you know, the standard, normal. So what he's saying, what Deleuze seems to be saying is that education is a normalizing process that tries to make everybody the same, um, always moving towards a nobler, higher and nobler conformity with this ideal, this normal. Um, so it, it's, him, it's him talking about how that's how we're creating this dominant reality. We're kind of sending our kids to, to uh, you know, we're, teach, we're constantly indoctrinating our kids to to manifest this dominant reality, this normal, whatever that means. And Deleuze's objection is that doesn't ex- it doesn't even exist. Normal doesn't exist. It's not a thing. Something like that. Yeah. I don't really have any objections to this. No, me neither. Um, I kind of, you know, I kind of consider myself to be a traditionalist in some kind of weird way. Um, you know, like the, I don't know, the idea of the traditional family like the family unit unit is appealing to me right things like that um at the same time though like i do like the idea of saying you don't have to be like everyone else you know i think that's good I, you know well like so this he's talking about education so like what comes to my mind is like those montessori schools and these different creative ways of doing it where you might be in class with like a six-year-old and a fucking freshman in high school because you guys both have the same math capabilities yeah and then you're gonna like be able to some of these classes though the kids can structure their own education where they're like look this year i'm working on math next year i'll work on you know what i mean it's like i just want to buckle down on math and just get really into it interesting it's like we we can't do that in our structure our education structure because it is what it is Mm -hmm. and that is a good example of postmodernism having kind of having a point man Maybe we could structure schools differently. Maybe we could experiment. There's lots of different things we might try that would be better. And we'll never know unless we get out from under the structure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, that is one reason why postmodernism kind of ties into, like, my libertarian bullshit. You know? It's like, because let's just let people do different things, you know? Mm. Like, we don't have to tell people what to do all the fucking time. Yep. Just let people do a bunch of different things. Yep. So. No, I agree. And I think there's some, I think there's some interesting stuff with postmodernism. Yeah. I think wh- where they go wrong, to me, has to do with the time in which they were written. 
It has to do with these people who are unable to say, I'm curious about these ideas that border on spirituality. They couldn't say, I am not an atheist. They couldn't say, you know, even once they got into this whole postmodern thing where, where meaning doesn't exist and everything's transitory, they couldn't, they couldn't say anything for certain. And they all wanted to. Yeah. You know, they painted themselves into this corner. Um, I don't know, man. This, I feel like maybe I'm being too critical because I do see a lot of value in it. I just wish they weren't... I wish they could have seen the one structure that really was keeping them from being genuine and honest. And it was this, it was the structure that, um, was peer pressure. It was what they, what was expected of them from the, from their fans. You know, that's how it seems to me. All right. Just like when the band can't, can't follow up that awesome first album. They could bring out some terrible shit the second time around. It always happens, man. Does it? Not always, but most of the time. A lot of times. Yeah. Um, the matches second album so 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 bad i don't even remember it oh boy uh match remember that first album, matchbook though. romance second album yeah so so bad also i don't even remember shout that out to one. matthew yeah. all right here we go so this is the next segment um these postmodernists talk a lot about language and thought and images and stuff like that so this is where i think a lot of the interest in psychology comes from in psychoanalysis because because of language because they they look at representation, and that so that's what postmodernists are suspicious about. Because language is representation. It's like there's something out there in the world, and if I want to put it in, a, in if I want to make a symbol out of it, like a hieroglyph or a word, I have to I have to make some kind of shorthand for this thing that exists out there in the world, and it's a representation. And so, and so, you don't realize what you're losing when you do that. If I take a cow. And I turn it into a symbol, C-O-W. What did I lose when I did that? It's not really clear. Now, it makes it easy for me to communicate with you about what it is I'm talking about, a cow. But what you, what you know about a cow and what comes to your mind may be completely different from what comes to my mind. So it's like, yeah, we're like on the same page, but are we? You know? And so they, they do this with language. They talk about language as representational and, they, and in, the, in a way that like, Hippies and me and like Carl Jung talk about reality as representational. Like human beings as representational, which I think is a really interesting idea. Um, so anyway, Foucault did this and Deleuze is no exception. So let's, let's get into this. Deleuze says, a concept is a brick. It can be used to build a courthouse of reason or it can be thrown through the window. A concept is a brick. What do you think? It reminds me of uh, communism is a hammer. Remember that quote? Yes. Concept is a brick. What do you think? Um, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I uh, I do like it. I think it's uh, it's got some truth, and I like that he like lays out the t- you know it can be used to build the courthouse or it can be thrown through the window. Yep. Either one, you know, it's got like the creative and the destructive. Yeah, absolutely. And these guys have a way of talking like that, mm-hmm. um, especially Deleuze. I, t- I told you uh, off air, and I didn't put a, a, maybe any of these examples in there, but Deleuze as a philosopher, as an academic, as a serious person, he drops way more F-bombs in his, his writing than I ever would have imagined would be acceptable. And it's one of those things, like I, like I mean, where it seems like 
the guy's trying to be edgy. Yeah. Like I'm a buttoned up college professor. I'm a PhD philosopher and, but fuck this and fuck that. And fuck, fuck, fuck. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. okay, all right. I get it. You're, you know, you're tough. You're a tough guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So, uh, where Foucault says that, um, like ideas are powerful, you know, uh, just having the idea of normal, it's like just having the idea of normal does all of, has all of this, you know, crazy impacts on our, on our social lives. And Deleuze says a concept is a brick. I think that's basically, they're on the same page about that. Mm-hmm. And words are powerful. There's no doubt about it. All right, he says, language is not made to be believed, but to be obeyed and to compel obedience. Newspapers, news preceded by redundancy in that they tell us what we must think, retain, expect, etc. Language is neither informational nor communicational. So I want to read that last sentence again. He says, language is neither informational nor communicational. And then I'll read the first one. Language is not made to be believed, but to be obeyed. So to him, language is strictly a tool of power. It's a communication tool. It's a tool of power. It doesn't actually communicate or inform anybody of anything. What do you think? It's a bold statement, Cotton. (laughs) Yes, it is a bold statement. It also seems to me like complete and utter bullshit. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, doesn't language need to be informational and communicational if it's going to compel anybody? You see, it's like they're trying... I feel like it goes back to them being edgy. It's just like, I'm going to say something about this, and that's it. There's no argument. It's like, I'm not arguing with you with him that language can be used as a tool of power 100%. Right. But I think it can also be used for other things, you know? Exactly. I, it's just, yeah, it's almost like they're like 14 years old, and they're like, language is gay. (laughs) (laughs) I think these guys would be the masters of the internet meme today. Yeah. They would just say outlandish things with little pictures. All right. All day long. Jill Deleuze, the meme lord. Jill Deleuze. All right. Here's another quote. Let us create extraordinary words on condition that they be put to the most ordinary use. And that the entity that they designate may be made to exist in the same way as the most common object. Let us create extraordinary words and put them to the most ordinary use. So that the most extraordinary things are looked upon like the most common objects. That's what he's saying. Yeah. And it's like a, it's like a command. He's like, this is what we should do. Let us create extraordinary words like to create extraordinary ideas concepts you know like like Foucault said you you just invent the idea of normal and see what kind of things happen as a result and you see what happens you know every every bulimic girl in high school who can't ever you know measure up to the normal that she's expected to she can tell you how powerful the idea of normal is Sure. What he's saying is, let's create extraordinary ideas and concepts, words, representations, and make them common. You know, I think that's what he's saying. Well, but he says it like that, like that's a an unquestionable good. Yeah, like I just don't. There's so much room to interpret what that means. You know, I just don't. It, it, that could be terrible. You know, it could be. Seems to me like it could be. Yeah. You know, but they and but that those are the questions that they're not bringing up. 
Um, and I, I can't remember if this is if this was Derrida. Hopefully it was, and we're not going to get to it later. But I think Derrida is the one that said um, that you have to question justice. You have to question justice because even justice is one of those assumptions. Like you think you think actions are just. Well, maybe you should question them. Like you might say, you think the United States support of Israel is just, but maybe you should think about you know the other side of the, of the coin or something like that. Yeah. Um, that's that's an idea. Um, I don't know where I was going with that, but but this this idea that you know it kind of reminds me of like let's create extraordinary words and make them common. It, it reminds me of like the nightmare before Christmas for some reason. This it's like is Halloween. When that movie came out, it was it was edgy and different, yeah. and now it's a, a Christmas classic, and yeah. and everybody you know sits down. You know what we're gonna watch? It's a Wonderful Life. Then we're gonna watch. <laughs> then we're gonna watch the Nightmare Before Christmas. Know. You know. It's a good movie. You should watch it later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I don't know. I don't know. But uh, it just kind of it just kind of makes me think like Deleuze wants to build this um, Dr. Seuss world where where you know we we bring all these new and novel things into the world and then people just people just learn, adapt to them like they're like they're commonplace and that this somehow this is going to be good. It's going to create this more interesting and dynamic place that we live in. And to these postmodernists, it's all going to be good. And I think that's the flaw in in their ambition. That's but there you have it. All right, this is this one's interesting. While we're talking about representation, he says the theory of thought is like painting. It needs that revolution which took art from representation to abstraction. This is the aim of a theory of thought without image. All right, go ahead. Kyle's Kyle's putting his thumb down. I don't want art to go from representation to abstraction i i like i think part of me just likes better likes art better as representation interesting i don't know i mean so that, that's not entirely true i do like you know some level of abstraction is good but i think that a sculpture like uh like david you know i think that that's that's beautiful that's mm-hmm. amazing mm-hmm. um you see some stuff that is like abstract art, and I—it's not amazing. It's not—it's not very compelling at all. I agree. Now, some of it's better than others, but you remember when sure. I when I brought up that uh, '80s aesthetic earlier? I was like, you see, like this abstract—it's like these generic ge- ge- geometric shapes and colors overlapping, and it's like, and the painting costs a hundred million dollars, and you're like, what in the Sam fuck is this, sir? I would not put this on my wall ever. It's terrible. And, 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 you know, you ask somebody who's in the know about it and like, well, you know, it means, you know, it's the contrast between the, whatever, man, like this is not art to me. So I, I do understand, but there, but there is some abstract art that's really crazy. There's one that comes to my mind that, I don't know if you call it abstract, actually, I'm probably wrong, but it's, um, it's Picasso. It's a self portrait that he did and it's from his cubist period. So it's cubist art. And what, what I remember learning about it was that it was like looking at Picasso's face from every dimension all at once. Whoa. So if you, ha- you have to look up the picture. It's, it's, again, I think I've seen it, but I don't. It's really interesting looking. Um, it po- the point is, you can, you can look at some, a piece of art like you just described, like David, and then you can look at a piece of art like, you know, Picasso, like a crazy Picasso piece or something, and you can see... Um, it couldn't be. They couldn't be any more different. He's saying, "What if? What if thought could be moved from this? From this, David, like you know, making it out like the way thought and language is today is like that. 
what would it mean if it was instead like Picasso? If thinking were like that, if language were like that, you know, and to him, that would be good. It would be new. It would, it would, it would, it would bring new potentials and possibilities. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what language would, would be like if, if, if it's like, you know, Raphael today and I have to make it like Picasso tomorrow. I have no idea what that means for thinking or language. It, it may be just one of those things that make you think, like, what would that be? And that's an interesting. I don't know. I have no idea what that would be. Yeah. Or if it would be good. But to them, to them, it would be good. And then he says, the, the, the aim is a theory of thought without image. Can it, now, can anybody, can anybody listening at all imagine what thought without image is? I can't. The only thing that comes to my mind, if I try to imagine what thought would be without image, without form, is just awareness. Blank awareness. And that also reminds me of, of an ego death, of a, of a mystic experience, of a crazy psychedelic journey. It reminds me of that moment when you become pure consciousness, pure eminence. And that honestly is what I think Deleuze is kind of getting at. And we'll, we'll get there shortly. But um, All right. So this whole, this whole thing about um, thought without image is interesting. Uh, next one is, he says, forming grammatically correct sentences is for the normal individual the prerequisite for any submission to social laws. That no one is supposed to be ignorant of grammaticality. Those who those who are belong in special institutions. Hey. So yeah, he's saying that somebody who doesn't understand understand grammar is crazy and will be in a, a mental institution. That gr- that learning grammar, like that I, that sentence sentences should be complete. That subject and object should be in the correct order. That verbs and adverbs and you know like there's a structure to language that's all very intentional and if you if you aren't obedient to that if you you know don't follow those rules you really can't communicate in fact you you really can't participate in society he's like following the rules of language are like following the rules of society and if you can't do it you're gonna you you know people are gonna call you crazy and put you in a and put you in an institution (coughs) yeah what do you think of that um I mean, I guess that's true. Closer. I guess that's true. The unity of language is fundamentally political, he says. The what? The unity the of unity language. The unity of language. What does that mean? What is the, the unity of language with what? With itself. It's like language is self-contained. And if you learn it, you're self-contained. It's like, if you know what I mean? It's like... The, the rules of language become the rules of thinking and that they become a structure that you have to exist within that you can never see out of. It's like they, they, they keep pointing it out that things are a constraint on us and they're not wrong. But again, it's not clear if getting rid of the constraints would make this Torah on God mode. If I get rid of the constraints, is, is it not fun anymore? Is, is, is reality... Does reality even exist the way it exists today? It's definitely not fun anymore, it seems to me, if we get rid of all the rules. And the postmodernists seem to be wanting to get rid of all the rules. And they're pointing out here, even the way we think and speak are like a prison that we're in. Yeah. And it's almost like Deleuze thinks that the crazy person, the person in the institution who doesn't follow the rules, like that's a desirable 
character. We need more of those people in society. We need society to be full of those people. Yeah, having society be full of those people, I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to live there, but I do think we could use some more of them. I don't think Deleuze wanted to live there, and that's why that's what hit, what that quote was about earlier, where he about said him being a fucking hypocrite about him being a hypocrite. Yeah, yeah. fucking Deleuze. All right, so this is the next section. It has yeah, to the goddamn French, you know, the goddamn French, Kyle. Every last Golly. I'm sorry. If we have any listeners in France, I'm just joking. We, we, have a couple, we have a couple of listeners in France. But listen, man, just like any, you know, maybe that's an unfair assumption. Just like the rest of Americans, <laughs> we don't know enough about what it's like in other, in other countries and what other cultures are like. We definitely don't know what they think about us, <laughs> for the most part. Yeah. Um, but when I think about the French, I think about Paris and I, I, I think about the World's Fair and the Eiffel Tower and high culture and perfume and wine the and, and the Louvre, exactly. I, I think about culture, high society and culture when I think of France. You know, that's what I think of. It's probably super unfair, but that's what I think of. Yeah. Yeah, there's like mountain men in France, you know? Yeah, Like guys sure. who don't want to wear French perfume. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But, you know. Yeah, I do too. I think of... Uh, yeah, just all the stuff you said. Baguettes. <laughs> right back at you. Uh, all right. So now this section is going to be about the self and the how self. and how these people understand themselves and what it's like to be an individual because it's important, especially with Foucault who's constantly talking about the group and power. How you see yourself is important. So Deleuze says, every animal is fundamentally a pack, a band, a pack, he says. What do you think of that? Every animal is fundamentally a band, a pack. Every individual animal is a pack? Yes. So he, he says every animal, but what he means is every human being. But, he, but what he's saying is every conscious creature. So not just us, but animals too. That, that we're more than one thing going on, going on in, our, in our minds. Uh, okay. we're, not, we're not one thing. And, and, many minds. Many minds. Too many minds. <laughs> and he calls it multiplicities. He says that human beings are multiplicities. Michael Keaton movie? Michael Keaton. You see you, the pizza and the wallet? I remember. Oh, man, it's I a got, good one. I got a wallet. Yeah, exactly. He remembers. <laughs> he remembers. Uh, I love Michael Keaton. Yeah, dude. Michael Keaton Original Batman. All right, so every animal is a pack, he's saying. And I, I, my note was that I take this to mean that we're simultaneously all the competing psychological forces in our minds... Every historical version of ourself that we have been or will be in the future and the impression of the culture and our ancestral history that brought us to our existence in the here and now. So all of those things are going on at once in ourself. So we're all of those things at once. And you, you can think about that. It's like, imagine you, remember you when you were 10. Remember you when you were 14. Remember you when you were 21. It's like you were a totally different person. Oh, yeah. But you've been all of those people, and you kind of still are all of those people. And that's kind of a way of, of, of making sense of it. And then he says, the self is only a threshold, a door, a becoming between two municipalities. Or, excuse me, multiplicities. <laughs> <laughs> the self is only a threshold, a door, a becoming between two multiplicities. Right. That's hippie. We're getting hippie dip, and I'm actually really starting to like it, but what do you think? Um, the self is only a threshold, a door, a becoming between two municipalities. <laughs> Multiplicities. Um, yeah, I mean, so it's just saying that 
the self, what you are now, is just constantly, you, you know, it's a door of becoming you becoming something else. I think so, and 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 he says between two multiplicities. So it's like the thing that you were is a multiplicity, and the thing that you will be is a multiplicity, and what you are is this is the thing in the middle that's constantly what Jordan Peterson says. You're right on the edge of order and chaos, and you're pulling order from the chaos. Yeah. That, that's what that's what's he's describing here. It seems to me. Um, and my little piece on here is is that. To say the self is a door is to say that the self is a is a uh, is needed as a concept to bridge the gap between. So this is going to get technical here, but to bridge the gap between what Deleuze calls the virtual or pure eminence and the actual, um, the bridge between God and man would be another way of putting it. And when he says that the self is a becoming between two multiplicities, he seems to be referring to our self consciousness. So um, both multiplicities to me are consciousness. The thing that I was and the thing that I will be are both consciousness. The thing that I am, consciousness, all consciousness, um, and that there's a process here of, of you know, uh, mutual creation of of yourself between being and becoming. And then I said that that's that's really eerily similar to an idea that I had uh, after having a profound mystic experience, and the and the idea was that. And I've said this before, and every time I try to explain it, I've, I hesitate because it's difficult. And I've, the point is, I had this insight that consciousness is all there is. That the thing that we call God, the everything in the mystic experience is consciousness. And if that's the case, then what consciousness does is experience. And if God is all there is, then what consciousness is experiencing is itself. And that's the thing that we call self-consciousness. Consciousness experiencing itself. It's like a back and forth. And that's what he's describing, a back and forth between two multiplicities. Self-consciousness is like a reflection back and forth. It creates that, it creates that fractal image that we see in a mystic and, and psychedelic experience. Um, so that self being a door and becoming between two multiplicities reminded me of that memory, of that experience. And it was, I was just like, okay, these guys were doing psychedelics in the 60s. This is what he, was, this is what he meant. And, and I'm convinced of it, but, you know, I haven't read everything that Deleuze said, but I'm convinced of it. It seems pretty close. I mean, it seems like a, uh, like, what am I trying to say? Like a logical translation, you know? But if you never did, like, strong psychedelic drugs and you read this, I don't know, the, I don't know how you could make sense of it. It's a good question. Deleuze also says the child is a metaphysical being. Okay. Which I just take to mean, you know, like I, I, I have kids. I look at them and I, you know, the emotion that you feel from, from having children is hard to describe. And it's, it, it's different in different situations. But one of the things you feel is an awe, a feeling of complete awe that has to do with how much potential they have. It's like you look at the, you look at the child and they look like potential, like what they are. It's not a beautiful child with a unique face and a name and a personality. It's just a bundle of potential. 
Mm. It's like I'm holding a bundle of that Terminator 2 substance that I'm telling you about, and I'm just waiting to see what it's going to transform into. It could become anything. It reminds me of my, my daughter's obsession with these toys that are color changers or they're toys that they're like in a bag and you put them in the water and the, the bag dissolves and you have to wait to see what you're going to get. It's, a, it's all about the surprise. All the all toys today are all about packaging, man. Yeah. It's all about anticipation and creating suspense and how difficult they are to open. and every, you gotta, That's what it's all about, man, okay. in today's marketing with, with kids' toys. Um, so that's what I see in this quote about the child is a meta, metaphysical being. It's like, yeah. A child is a very meta- metaphysical being. It's a magical thing. A child is like a representation of potential. You know? All right. A child is the face of God. Something like that. Something like that. <laughs> All right. All right. All right. So he says, it's a strange business speaking for yourself in your own name. Because it doesn't at all come with seeing yourself as an ego or a person or a subject. Individuals find a real name for themselves, rather, only through the harshest exercise of depersonalization, by opening themselves up to the municipalities everywhere within them, multiplicities everywhere within them, uh, to the intensities running through them. So uh, this um, municipalities is sometimes used in the like in, in uh, the Bible and in religious yeah. words to, to talk about angels or, or heavenly spirits, and I think that's what that's what I keep I keep seeing. That's my own shit. That's my own Freudian slip. Um, but anyway, so he, he's talking about this experience of being genuine when he says it's strange business speaking for yourself in your own name because it doesn't come along with a, with an experience of being an ego or a, or a subject. So. I don't, I don't exactly know what he's saying here. If you're speaking for yourself in your own name, that you don't, you don't have an ego. You don't have a, a self associated with the words coming out of your mouth. It's like you're, it's like you're speaking truth, like you're like you're an invisible person, you know, speaking truth into the cosmos or something. Like what what he's describing is a depersonalization. That's what he's saying. It's only through the harshest depersonalization. Um, by opening yourself up to the multiplicities in, inside you. So it's like you're not a one thing. You're not a self that you seem to be. You're actually made up of all these different forces with, within you, right? What did, what did he call them? Po- powers and for- forces and flows. That's what you are, your forces and flows. So if, once you realize that you're not, you're not a self, you're not an ego, you're all of these different things that are going on, you know, all at once that make you think you're a self, something like that. And I know Kyle's giving me this weird look like, what in the fuck does this man say? And, and, and I think that's good. I think that's, I think that's the point, man. I think, what, uh, I, think what, I think what this guy is after is yeah. an ego death. When he, says, so. when he says, when you speak for yourself, you, you don't have an ego. He's like, it's the, it's the strangest business when it happens. You don't have a self. And he's like, individuals need, need to find that. By figuring out that they aren't really a self. I just want to know, like, in what context do you not have an ego when you're speaking for yourself? Well, he's saying that that. Well, it's it's hard to understand. It, it reminds me of like, if you understand yourself to be God, like I do, th- through the mystic experience, to understand everything to be consciousness, including yourself, and that thing to be God, that. How do I put this? That anybody speaking is speaking for you, through you, as you. There's no difference between you and someone else. There's no there's no difference between what's happening and what you are doing. 
There's no difference. You're, everything is one. It's like this crazy thing that's, that, that happens psychologically when you have that experience. That every, the subject and object kind of meld together. And uh, I think what he's getting at is some sort of experience free from con- individual consciousness. It's like, what would it be to experience without being you? And that's what it feels like when you become one with the universe. When you have that mystic experience, you are experiencing. It seems like you're experiencing everything. You're, you're, you, you feel like you're experiencing what it's like to be God. You're still there. You still understand you're the thing having the experience, but you have no connection to who you are. You are just the experience. You become the experience. It's a fascinating thing. And when that happens, it's, it's a spiritual experience. It's pleasant beyond imagining. When you, when you cease to be yourself and you strictly are experience, that's what it means to be God. That's what it feels like. That, that's what I try to describe when I describe the mystic experience. And if that's what you're after, you would be after a depersonaliz- depersonalization. You would be talking about how to get rid of the ego. It would explain why these postmodernists seem to take an issue with psychologists and psychoanalysts. You know, what they're looking for is a way of being unconscious. It's a way of becoming uh, disconnected from yourself and being pure and authentic and not held back even by the structure of your being. Like yourself, your identity is one of these structures that you have to get out from under. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Next. He Next. Said, he says, to become imperceptible oneself, to have dismantled love in order to become capable of loving to have dismantled oneself in order to finally be alone and meet the true double at the other end of the line. A clandestine passenger on a motionless voyage to become like everybody else. But this precisely is a becoming only for one who knows how to be nobody, how to no, no longer be anybody, to paint oneself gray on gray. So you have to have, you have, to have some thoughts on this. To paint oneself gray on gray. It's what do you very, think? It's very poetic. It is poetic. It is poetic, but you can see what I mean. He says, to dismantle oneself in order to finally be alone and meet the true double at the other end of the line, to paint oneself gray on gray. He says right here, um, becoming only for one who knows how to be nobody, to no longer be anybody. So that's what Foucault said when he says he, he wants to have no face. They want to be nobody. They want to paint themselves gray on gray to to become one with the art, to become one with existence, to become one with experience. When he says to dismantle oneself in order in order to finally be alone and meet the true double at the other end of the line, that to me is he's tattling on himself in that sentence. I don't know if he realizes it or not, but what he's saying here is if I can remove myself from myself, if I can get out from under the ego, what I will find is the true double at the other end of the line. Remember when I was describing consciousness reflecting off of itself and creating this fractal experience? What is the consciousness that God is experiencing? It's himself. That's the double at the other end of the line. When you, when you, when you remove yourself from your ego and you encounter God, you realize that you are God. That's the double at the other end of the line. That's the mirror that you see when you finally pull the, you know, pull the, uh, um, you know, the, the, 
oh, I can't think of the goddamn word. The veil back. When you finally pull the veil back and you're like, what's the secret behind reality? And you're looking in a mirror. You know, okay. that's, what, that's what Deleuze is saying. That's what the atheist is saying. And I'm like, motherfucker, that is the most mystic shit I ever heard. You're not a very good atheist, Jill. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, seriously. When he says to dismantle the self, to paint oneself gray on gray, how is he not describing a, a psychedelic experience? How is this 1960s guy not talking about a mystic experience? To paint oneself gray on gray. I don't know, man. Now, I'm asking, I want to ask you this because you, you always call me on my shit, which I appreciate. Do you think I'm reading into that? And to what degree? Um, I don't know. Maybe, I, I don't know, because I think that the, the, solim, the, similarities, <laughs> the similarities are there. So I don't know. I think, um, I think you might be onto something, man. I mean, okay. Well, then this next one goes along with it, and it, it sounds even more like Foucault. He says, lose your face. It's exactly what Foucault said. He said, to, uh, you know, he, he wants to have an old face. This guy says, lose your face. Become capable of loving without remembering without phantasm and without interpretation, without taking stock. Let there be fluxes which sometimes dry up, freeze, or overflow, which sometimes combine or diverge. So he's describing what you, should, what you could be like if you got out from under all of these constraints. And he, and, and he says, you, you become capable of loving without remembering. It's like you love everything and everyone, um, and it's not attached to it. It's not attached to an individual. It's like it's like I love you know a stranger. Let's say you can kind of imagine it like in a Jesus sort of way. Um, not not oh boy. I don't know how to put this. It's not like one individual choosing to love another. It's like one individual recognize another, and that recognition is love. Something like that. Um, it, but all this stuff about you know, uh, losing your face and, um, you know, love without remembering, without phantasm, without interpretation. It's like without the self, love mm. without a self. And what it reminds me of is something we talked about once before. Uh, it's a Buddhist, um, thing where they won't say I am in pain. They'll say there is pain. And it's, it's like a meditation. If they're in pain, they just say there is pain and it helps to ease it. It's like dissociates their, themselves from this existence. He's saying love without remembering, without interpretation, without taking stock. He's talking about love without a self. He's talking about existence without a self. He wants to, he wants to be without a self. And I just cannot help but think that is the most mystic shit. That is the most religious thing yeah. that these guys can't see. And it continues. He says, one does not write with, his own, with one's ego, one's memory, and one's illnesses. In the act of writing, there is an attempt to make life something more personal, to liberate life from what imprisons it. There is a profound link between signs, the event, life, and vitalism. It is the power of non-organic life, that which can be found in a line of drawing, a line of writing, a line of music. It is organisms that die, not life. All right. So, obviously, this guy's a philosopher. He's writing, just like Foucault and Derrida. And they're and you know Foucault and Derrida talked about how they were creating a labyrinth for, when they, with their writing that that 
consciousness can go into even after they're dead and, and tackle their ideas. Like they have this very kind of heaven-like way of talking about this intellectual space of, of language. So he says one does not write with one's ego or, or one's memory or one's illnesses. It's like when you're writing, you're becoming your thoughts dissociated from yourself, something like that. So it's like he says in the act of writing, there's an attempt to make life something more personal, to liberate life from what imprisons it. So you're liberating your life from your body and you're putting it in this book. It's like something that was alive and vital and came from your mind organically that you captured it in, in writing. And it's like that's somehow more important than the person who wrote it. You know, something like that. He says that, it, that it's something about the representation, something about what you've written and captured, that it's the life itself. It's the, it's the vitalism that's been captured. He calls it non-organic life. He says something that could be captured in a line of drawing, in a line of writing, or in a line of music. That a, that a consciousness has, writ, has created this immortal thing by writing it down somehow. It's interesting. It's a fucking it interesting way of thinking about it. It really is. But it's also interesting because it's, it's, these guys are talking about representation, language, but, and all kinds of signs and symbols and signifiers. You know, even music. It's interesting. All right. And then he says, the last quote in this one, he says, placing oneself in a position where one feels something moving that has neither an interest nor a purpose. So this is, again, more about separating the self from life or from consciousness, the thing that, the thing that makes you alive. He says that what, what you're seeking is feeling something moving, right? It's not something that you're moving. You just notice it's moving, Right. So you're, it's not the self. You, you're, not, you're not controlling it. You're only, you're only aware of it, right? So he says, one feels something moving that has neither an interest nor a purpose. So it's like your consciousness, but you don't have, you don't, there's nothing that you want. You're not a self at all. You're not an ego at all. You don't have an interest or a purpose. You just are. You just are. You're just consciousness. And that seems to be what he wants to separate the self entirely and to be what you can be if, if you could only separate yourself from that last final prison. I just don't know how you get there without having tripped serious balls in the 60s, and these guys did. Yeah, taking some mushrooms, probably some acid. LSD for sure. For sure. For sure. For sure. All right. So this is the last bit here. Ontology. Um, Oh, no, there's a tiny bit about politics I saved for the end. So I'm going to try to get through this um, ontology bit. Ontology, is that like the study of cancer? <laughs> uh, no, Ont ontology is the type of philosophy that talks about um, beginnings, creation, where what things is, come from. What is the study of cancer? Cancer is... Oh, yeah. Oncology? Oncology, yes, oncology. Right, there we go. Close to ontology, but but very different. Ontology is the study of... Ontals. Ontals. I don't know what <laughs> Well, I'm sure it has some... What Greek... is ontology? I'm not... I've, I, I really... I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm sure the word has some Greek Greek origin, but it's... Uh, ontology is the philosophy that talks about the origins. It talks about oh, okay. creation, where things come from. Gotcha. Why is there knew, something instead of nothing? Word. Yep. Um, being. You know, it talks about being. Being. So this is the stuff that I like the most. This is the stuff that I think borders on the religious the most, and the stuff that I think... You see in, you see 
in philosophy that gets talked about like uh, in code because nobody wants to talk about God. Nobody wants to talk about religion or anything borders on that because in, t- in the modern age, if you start talking about God, people write you off, especially in the academic world. It's like if you're supposed to be smart, you can't possibly can, you know entertain any idea about supernatural, what anything. Yeah. And it's just a narrow way of thinking that the postmodernists, I would imagine, would have some would have some uh, something to say about. But it's just that's just an unquestioned assumption now. All right, so here we go. We're going to talk about ontology through the mouth of Deleuze. Listen to this, Kyle. Something in the world forces us to think. This something is an object, not of recognition, but of a fundamental encounter. Okay, so you would agree that. As long as you're awake, and maybe even when you're, when you're not, you're thinking. You can't help but to think. And just like anything in the world, if you think about it from a scientific perspective, there's a stimulus and there's a response. So what is it? What is the stimulus that's making you think? You agree. You agree that you're thinking and you can't help it. My question is, and Deleuze's question is, what is the stimulus that's causing you to think? Because it wouldn't just happen, right? It has to have a reason. He says, the stimulus is a fundamental encounter. What in the fuck does that mean? He's saying, he's saying, I'll just put it this way. You open up your eyes, what's happening? You have a fundamental encounter, an encounter with reality. You open up your eyes and fucking reality's there. So as soon as you're conscious, you are encountering reality. That's what he's saying is the fundamental encounter. And what does that cause you to do? causes you to think. You can't help it. The moment you're conscious, you're thinking. It's like a stimulus response. The, the world, your encounter with the world, what do we call that? We call that your consciousness. That causes you to think. And I just thought that was a brilliant way of saying it. Something in the world forces us to think. You know? It's like, it's like it's not coming from you. It's not coming from the self. You know? It's like, there's something in the about the world that causes you to be conscious. You know? I mean, it's it's fucking weird. It's interesting. I don't know what to say about it, but but there it is. He he thinks that consciousness is the is the thing that causes us to think. He also talked to earlier about the thinker. Remember versus the the rational person? The thinker is the is the thing that brings something new. It's the chaos principle. It's the thing that can, you know, can can bring something new into being from nowhere. Um, so I think that's I think that's interesting. Something in the world forces us to think, and that's consciousness. And that the thing the thing that we're thinking is the generative thing. It's the the, the chaos that can bring something new into the world, and that's what these postmodernists want. That's the unquestioned good, the new and the novel. All right. He also says this: difference is not the phenomena, but the noumena closest to the phenomena. All right. So I, I have to explain this. So this goes back to like Kant, but Kant talks about the noumena and the phenomena. Phenomena is um, existence. It's all the things that are happening. That's those are phenomena. And then the noumena is like the uh, is like the supernatural. It's the forces, the invisible stuff behind reality. That's the noumena. Uh, well, we t- we talked about anima and noumena before. Um, so he says that difference is not existence. It's not the phenomena, but it's the noumena. It's the spiritual thing that's the closest to the phenomena. So to me, this sounds like that the closest thing to God are the differences between things. 
So like Deleuze said this? Deleuze said that. Hmm. So like what makes, you know, I don't know what the reality is, but like what makes an iron atom different from a gold atom? Like a certain number of protons or electrons or something, right? It's like that's the difference between two very similar things. And the difference between you and I would be harder to pin down, but but we could we could try, right? The difference between whatever. He's saying that that God, the noumena, is is the closest thing we can get to that is is by identifying whatever it is that makes a difference between one thing and another. And and that's something that Derrida said when he was talking about language. He's like, look, you can say what something means, but that only refers to some other word, and it means something similar. And then if you if you ask what that means, it just refers to another word. So meaning, that's what difference means. Meaning is always deferred forever, forever, forever. You can never get to the origin of meaning. So what does that sound like to you? It sounds like you're chasing after the unknowable. That's God. You're chasing after the, the meaning that it, you can never grasp. It's constantly changing. Something like that. So anyway, I think that's what he means when he says difference. In fact, that, that word difference that Derrida says, it comes from difference. Okay. Um, he also says that the world is an infinite series of curvatures or inflections, and the entire world is enclosed in the soul from one point of view. And for somebody who doesn't like psychology and psychoanalysis, uh, to say that the entire world is enclosed in the soul from one point of view seems like an interesting thing to say. It's like you're this, your subjective world, right? Like that that's contained in in the self in your soul, you're, as an you know that exists for you as an individual, and that's interesting, man, because that is something that you lose if you get what what De, uh, what Deleuze wants. If you get rid of the self and you just become experience, then you aren't an individual anymore. And if you're not an individual anymore, then you don't have a soul anymore, mm-hmm. right? He says the world is enclosed in the soul. We think about that as our subjective experience. That doesn't exist anymore. So that seems kind of sad, you know? If subjective experience exi- doesn't exist anymore, that means... There aren't people. Things don't happen. We don't interact. There's no action. There's nothing. Is that is that the reality that uh, the postmodernists want to want to live in? Seems pretty boring. I don't know, man. All right. Um, he also says, a creator who isn't grabbed around the throat by a set of impossibilities is no creator. A creator is someone who creates their own impossibilities and thereby creates possibilities. It's by banging your head on the wall that you find a way through. I love it. Yeah, that's good stuff. All right. He also brings up Spinoza, which uh, I'll read a little bit about. He says, um, well, you know what? He, he says Spinoza is the prince of philosophers. So he has a really, uh, we talked about that in the beginning. I'm going to skip this quote here. He, um, he has a, a huge um, appreciation for Spinoza and Nietzsche. And he doesn't exactly explain why, but Spinoza did something really interesting. Spinoza was the only philosopher, or at least the first one, to ever say that all of experience is you can equate to God. And then he goes along and proves it mathematically somehow. That what he did was talk about the creation of, of the universe in a way that nobody had ever done. And you can see how a postmodernist would appreciate that. It's like Spinoza was like Akhenaten in ancient Egypt. He just fucking totally 180'd the script and was like, uh-uh, I'm going to do something totally different. 
And uh, Deleuze said he was the prince of philosophers. He even called him the Christ of philosophers. Whoa. He also says the canvas is never empty, which to me I think is an extremely religious sentiment. It's like the canvas is never empty, meaning what? Meaning that every opportunity, that every human being, that you know, every interaction, that every every the beginning of any work of art, um, is complete potential. It's like that statement he said about children being metaphysical beings. It's like everything is just that Terminator Two substance. It's complete potential. Could be anything. Um, and I think I just, I just think that's a, a different way of talking about God. So it's interesting for to hear an atheist say something like that. The canvas is never empty. He also says, this dream, therefore, is itself action, reality, and in effect, uh, menace to all established order. It renders possible what it dreams about. So I'm going to read that in a different way. He said, the dream is action. It renders possible what it dreams about. Yeah. I I think that's beautiful. Yeah. But, you know, that's a little different. To say that the dream renders possible what it dreams about. First of all, it is to say nothing about where dreams come from, which is a fucking interesting and religious conversation. Um, but, you know, the individual is the one who dreams. You know, the individual he's trying to get rid of. So that's interesting. Um, he also says, again, brings something in- incomprehensible into the world. So it's just, a, it's just a, you know, it's just like a, a the, the, kind of, the kind of thing that God would say. You know, it's like create Bring something new into the world. So you, you get that from Deleuze. Um, okay. All right, I got two, two here that are a little bit heady, and we'll, we'll try to get through them uh, without too much um, difficulty. All right, he says, he says the subjects, its concepts, and also the objects in the world to which the concepts are, are applied have a shared internal essence. So I'll stop there just for the sake of brevity. He's saying subjects, concepts, and objects in the world all have a shared internal essence, which is a lot like a hippie way of saying all is one, right? Concepts, objects, and subjects all have the same essence. They all mean the same thing, have the same source. It's a very fucking mystic thing to say. Then he says this. He says the self-resemblance at the basis of identity... So the self-resemblance is something he says is at the basis of identity. Now, you remember the image I brought up about the back and forth between consciousness, the mirror reflecting off of itself, that self-conscious back and forth. That's the self-resemblance at the basis of identity. And God is the thing, remember, the closest thing to God is the difference between. So there's a connection here between the multiplicities, all of the things that exist in the world, and uh, this shared in- internal essence. Everything is God. Mm-hmm. That's another way, of, another way of saying that. Then he says representational thought is analogical. It, its concern is to establish a, a correspondence between these symmetrically structured domains. Woo! <clears throat> so, uh, you know, philosophers aren't the... Um, I mean, yeah, he, this guy's been poetic, but there are times where it's dry and hard to understand. This is one of them. Uh, he says the weapons it wields in the pursuit are the determination of the exclusive set of properties possessed by each term in contradistinction to the others. And this is where he brings in hierarchy. He says, and hierarchical ranking, 
which is the measurement of the degree of perfection of a term's self-resemblance in relation to a supreme standard, man, God, or gold, value, morality. All right, so let me just pump the fucking brakes for a second. Jesus, Jill. So, <laughs> so Jill is now talking about this, this shared essence behind all subjects and objects and the difference between them that makes, that makes anything possible. The self-resemblance at the basis of identity. That's the difference between one thing and another that make them distinct from each other. These are things that we're representing. They're representational. And that there's a correspondence or a symmetry between, uh, between them because they all, ref- they all refer back to the same internal essence. So I know that's as clear as mud. Mm. Um, and, then he's, and then he's saying that the hierarchy here that he's describing is the difference between all of these things in comparison to the, to the internal essence. So everything that's different that creates a distinct thing is different in a different way from its source. Something like that. And that the hierarchy that's established is, he says, it's a, it's a measurement of the degree of perfection of a term's self-resemblance. So how close is it to the source? The things that are the most close, they go higher up on the hierarchy. Something like that. It's really fucking weird to hear, hear him say this. And then he says, the modus operandi is negation. So X equals X, not X equals Y. And this is a way for, of him saying, this is how we know that, you know, this is how we can know anything. This is what knowledge is. Knowledge is talking about the difference between things. And then when he says that everything has the same internal essence, he's kind of saying that there isn't a difference between things. So this is where he starts getting into talking about the virtual and the actual. And we start talking about something that sounds a bit like like the movie The Matrix. All right, so let's get into that. All right, here we go. You got got something? Okay, here we go. No, I just like you said it sounds like The Matrix. I'm excited (laughs) about that. All right, here we go. He says... Purely actual objects do not exist. All right, so we're going to talk about the difference between virtual and actual, but purely actual objects do not exist. That's like saying um, this table that Kyle and I are sitting at, that I have a subjective experience of it, and you have a subjective experience of it, and uh, those experiences, they don't reflect the real table. Our experience of this table isn't the table. It's like what Plato's saying. The essence, the world of forms, that's a different thing. uh, The objective uh, reality is something different. I think that's what he's getting at. He says, purely actual objects do not exist. He says, every actual surrounds itself with a cloud of virtual images. The virtuals encircling the actual perpetually renew themselves by emitting yet others, with which they are in turn surrounded, and which go on in turn to react upon the actual. It is the dramatic identity of their dynamics that makes a perception resemble a particle. So this is going to get interesting. An actual perception surrounds itself with a cloud of virtual images with bo- which both make and unmake each other. All right, so there's no possible way that what we're, what we're describing here is not some kind of magical, supernatural fucking thing. Yeah. But what he's saying here is that you've got something that's actual, something that's, that exists objectively, and that it's surrounded by a cloud of related um, images, that that's something that's like a particle with electrons, f- you know, floating around in, you know, hypothetical uh, 
probability clouds or whatever. Um, so just like the particles that make up material reality, the particles of uh, experience are like that. <laughs> something like that. That there's, there's something to them, but that they're surrounded by this association, this cloud of virtual things, and that, and that they interact with the actual. So that, that would be like the image I started with when I said that consciousness is like a mirror, like an image reflecting back and forth on a mirror. But imagine every time, every time it, it bounces off the mirror, it's changed. Yeah. By the by that by that interaction, you just keep hitting. Your mic's I said it's fucking cracking I'm, me up. I'm dude. talking with my hands, and, and it's just me and Kyle here. So like I'm doing I'm doing it just for you, buddy. It's like the 100th time you've hit it. <laughs> uh, okay, so where 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 do we stop? So he said um, that makes a perception resemble a particle. A perception resemble a particle. It's weird, man. Yeah, man. All right, um, and then he says. It is by virtue of their mutual inextricability that virtual images are able to react upon actual objects. From this perspective, the virtual image delimit a continuum. So the virtual images delimit a continuum. This is very, very hard to understand, but I'll try. Uh, let me just finish reading. He says the, the varyingly dense layers of the actual object correspond to these circles of virtual images. These layers, whilst themselves virtual, constitute the total impetus of the object. So what he's saying here is that these layers of um, virtual images that surround the actual, whatever the objective thing actually is, that those things interact with the actual and that they constitute what makes it real. So you've got these virtual images that surround the objective reality and those virtual images somehow make it real. So that would be like the that would be like the John Wheeler physics way of saying you're collapsing the wave function. Like I look at this table and it becomes a table. I look away and now it's just a probability cloud, right? It, it's nothing real. It's it's, it's it's this pure actual object doesn't actually exist. But when I look at it, I collapse the wave function of possibilities and it becomes a table again. And he that's how he's describing this. That's how he's describing how the virtual nature of reality becomes material reality. It does it as an interaction between what I interpret as consciousness with itself. And he says that that, that, that delimits a continuum. And what he means by that is you've got something infinite, right? You've got something infinite. It can exist in the material world. God is an infinite thing, let's say. It can exist in the material world because it's finite. Nothing in the material world is infinite. So how can God be here? It doesn't make sense. What he's saying is that the virtual images delimit the continuum. So it takes something infinite and makes it finite. And that's what makes it real somehow. It's very fucking weird. That is weird. What is Deleuze getting at here? I don't know. It's trippy, bro. Trippy, bro. So these dense layers of virtual make, the, make this objective thing exist. And... Um, that, the, the actual, right, the thing that this virtual image surrounds, this is what Deleuze calls pure eminence. How is that not God? We're, yeah. talking, we're talking about God as the Terminator 2 substance that gets collapsed into reality, you know, that, that, that gets it collapsed into reality by the virtual, by the associations that this thing has to itself, that consciousness has to itself. It's the most hippiest thing I ever heard. I Super love it. Hippie. I love it. It makes me. It makes me want to like the postmodernists, but it's not. It to me, it's not the 
best way of going about making the argument. Yeah. It does right. it does seem like they're kind of getting at the same thing though? I mean, it does. He says these layers, while themselves virtual, it's just like saying, look, the 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 material of the fundamental particles that make up the atom, they're they're quantum particles. So they don't really exist. They don't have certain momentum or or right like they they're they're, they're they have quantum uncertainty. They don't really exist. But somehow you put them all together and they make something that really exists. And that that's what Niels Bohr said. He said, he said uh, about quantum mechanics, he said um, uh, that what, what quantum physics tells us is that things are that things are made up of things that cannot be regarded as real. That's what he said. Reality is made up of things that cannot be regarded as real. And this is what he said. He said that those virtual things that cannot be regarded as real, that they make up uh, they make up, what does he call it? He calls it the, um, they constitute the total impetus of the object. That means that they make it real. Amazing. That's crazy. Amazing. So. All right. And then he says, the plane of eminence, remember that's just existence, upon which the, di- the dissolution of the actual object itself occurs, is itself constituted when both object and image are virtual. But the process of actualization, that's the process of becoming real, is one which has a uh, which has as great an effect on the image as it does on the object. So the process of becoming real is an interaction between the virtual and the actual, between pure eminence, right? It's it's a relationship between consciousness with itself. That's what he's saying. He says the virtual is never independent of the singularities which cut it up and divide it out of the plane of eminence. The plane of eminence includes both the virtual and its actualization simultaneously. So reality includes God and the material world simultaneously. Consciousness in the material world. Then he says actualization begins or belongs to the virtual. So that means the real, the things that are material real, belong to pure eminence, to God. Okay. To something that's not real. It's virtual. That's pretty crazy. That's some Matrix shit, and yeah. I love it. There is no spoon. <laughs> <laughs> the actualization of the virtual is, is singularity, whereas the actual itself is individuality constituted. The actual falls from the plane like a fruit, whilst the actualization relates it back to the plane as if to that which turns the object back into a subject. So I just want to point out, he's talking about the actual. He's talking about new things that get brought into the actual material world, whether they're ideas or they're, or they're material things. He says that they fall from, the, from pure eminence like fruit. That's God. Mm-hmm. Just fall off the God tree. All this coming from an atheist. And you see, <coughs> it just seems to me like you have to get this kind of fancy talking. You have to get this kind of deep in the intellectual language in the weeds just to avoid saying God. Yeah. You know? It's pretty It's pretty stupid. Pretty stupid. All right. Uh, last one before we get into the po- political. It says, perhaps this is the supreme act of philosophy. Not so much to think the plane of eminence as to show that it is there. That which cannot be thought and yet must be thought which was thought once as Christ was incarnated once in order to show one <laughs> let me start over because I've wrecked this beautiful sentence it says perhaps this is the supreme act of philosophy not so much to think the plane of existence as to show that it is there 
that which cannot be thought and yet must be thought, which was, th- which was thought once as Christ was incarnated once in order to show one time the possibility of the impossible. So now this guy's, now this guy's bringing in the, the, the character of Jesus saying that God became man once in this impossible miracle, right? He's saying that's what, that's what the goal of philosophy is, is to bring about the impossible, to make it real, just like, just like Christ was incarnated once. I just think that's interesting. Like this guy is tattling on himself by, you, by choosing that, uh, you know, reference. Yeah. He's a religious atheist. Pretty much. All right. There's a lot of these guys going around. I don't know if you have anything you want to say um, before we start reading these political uh, quotes. Anything so far on Deleuze? Or any questions? Uh, I do. I, I like a lot of it. I mean, and he, I don't know what it is, but he does seem to be more, I mean, some of it is kind of just like your typical philosophy language. It's just really like, I feel like, and maybe it is because he's trying not to say God, but it's just like so like needlessly complicated. Mm. Um, just say God, bro. Just say God, bro. <laughs> and you know, and then there's there's always like a little bit of a show offiness in the way yeah. that the way that they write to sound smart and stuff. And I, you know, I don't know how much of that's intentional, especially if you read someone like Heidegger, just like motherfucker. What I was gonna say about Deleuze though is that he's actually a lot of the stuff that he writes is actually kind of pretty. It, it is very nice. He does he does use a lot of a lot of poetry. You can yeah. say that. And again, I, I didn't put in the quotes where he's dropping F-bombs, but he does a bunch of that, too. He's a colorful writer. Yeah. You know, he's saying things that are, like, inflammatory. He's making a lot of, like, matter-of-fact statements about shit you can't do that on. You know, that's the kind of thing you see in today's media. It's, like, clickbait type stuff. Yeah. Deleuze was the first click, clicker-baiter. Clicker-baiter. All right. All right, so, again, all these postmodernist guys are connected with uh, communism for the most part. So what did this guy have to say about politics? Let's take a look. Let's see. All right, he says, The administrations in charge never cease announcing supposedly necessary reforms to reform schools, to reform industries, hospitals, the armed forces, prisons. These are the societies of, con- of control, which are in the process of replacing the disciplinary societies. Control is the name... Burroughs proposes as a term for the new monster, one that Foucault recognizes as our immediate future. So the, so the administration's in charge. These are the governments. Mm-hmm. They never cease talking about reforms. They're, all, they're always telling us how necessary it is that we reform the tax code, that we reform the police force, sure that we reform. that fucking reform. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And he says that these are the societies of control. Yeah. And that, and again, Bur- whoever he's referring to as as Burroughs here refers to him as the new monster. William and, F. Burroughs, maybe. Oh, uh, <laughs> William F. Buckley. I don't know. One that. What is Burroughs middle in it? What? Whatever. You don't know Burroughs? Uh, Milton. He did Naked Lunch. Uh, he's why he's like associated with like the beat writers. No. No. Uh-uh. Burroughs. He's it- a. Yeah. One of those guys, Jack Kerouac, oh, Ginsburg, yeah. oh, okay. those, uh, those, guys, those guys, those guys, those guys. So uh, I don't know what you think of that, but you, but you can see um, because they're always talking about power and you know groups imposing power on 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 an, each other. You can see the government reform; they're seen as doing as doing something good or necessary, right? The government's working for the people, but what they can do, what the opportunity that, that they're given here is to change this social institutions that are used to 
to move power around to control people, and that's Foucault would say. Uh, what do you think of that? I mean, there's there's definitely. I mean, we de- it, this was written, you know, I guess not all that long ago, but there doesn't seem to be much of a difference today. I mean, this this is happening. This is this is still happening. Yeah. Um, I don't know if something like uh, like the defund the police movement, let's say, I don't know if something like that. Um, like, I guess what I'm saying is, how does that change the power dynamic? I guess it remove kind of removes the power dynamic, or it's trying to. Hmm. Okay. I guess that makes sense. I guess that makes sense. It's a postmodern thing. All right. Whatever. <laughs> Next quote. He says the best one can hope for is a government favorable to certain claims and demands from the left. The best one can hope for is a government favor favorable to certain claims and demands from the left. Oh well, I mean, I guess it was a different time. Yeah, I'm not sure what he means by that. I mean, if you even what like understanding of the left does he mean? Does he mean like the you know the the traditional liberal? Is that what he's trying to say? Like you know, uh, as long as the government is um, is favorable to uh, you know ideas of personal sovereignty and and you know individual liberty and stuff like that 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 you know because that's what the left used to mean. Yeah, but it doesn't anymore. And the the communist connection to these postmodernists makes it hard for me to understand what he's saying. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that a shame? It is. All right. He also says a minority may be bigger than a majority. He also says that. We talked about that, you know, politically recently. It, all it takes is a small group of people to raise enough of a fuss. And uh, that's what he's saying. Yep. And you see that in action. I oh, mean, yeah. Well, I guess you saw it in the 60s, too. And that's what would have been when they were at their height. True. He says uh, maybe speech and com- communication have been corrupted. They're thoroughly permeated by money, and not by accident, but by their very nature. We've got to hijack speech, he says. We've got to hijack speech. Yeah. Now, for somebody, for these people who put, you know, who recognize the power in ideas and in language, um, for them to say we have to hijack speech should be way more worrisome of a threat. It's like these guys know how important speech is and how manipulative it is and how how it can be used as power. They know that because they're the ones that are that are deconstructing it. They're the ones that are criticizing it. They're, that's the critical theory that they're bringing to the table. And they're the, and then they're saying, now that we've recognized how powerful it is, we've got to hijack it. We've got to use it for our own ends. God damn, that that is a prophetic thing to say, but it's scary. Yeah. You don't think that we should hijack speech? Good question. I don't think the bad guys should hijack speech. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a good question, man. You always do that to me. <laughs> um, do I think we should hijack speech? It's like if you know if somebody's doing it that I disagree with, you, you have to ask yourself: Do you stoop to their level? And if you don't, what are you, what are you sacrificing? And I'm sensitive victory. to that. Victory, victory. That's what maybe victory. God, so you got to fight dirty, or you're going to lose. That's pretty much it. And the fucking American Revolution taught us that. Mm-hmm. You know that with the guerrilla warfare and all these, all these, you know, formalized armies from Europe with their structure and their order. They come yeah. over and line up, and the we just fight like Native Americans behind rocks. You know, popping up and shooting arrows and disappearing. Like and Mel fucking Gibson. We and played dirty. We didn't play by the rules, and yeah. that's how we won. Hell yeah! Fuck. It's just like a depressing thing to me to think that. As long as people, as, as long as you can't get everyone to play by the rules, then the cheater is always going to be at an advantage. You know, mm-hmm. fuck. 
I hate it. <laughs> he just smiles and goes, it is what it is. Chris, keep reading. <laughs> All right, so here, here we go. The fundamental problem of political philosophy is, is still precisely the one that Spinoza saw so clearly. Why do men fight for their servitude as stubbornly as, as though it were for salvation? Remember when we read that quote during yeah. the Spinoza episode? Why do men fight for their servitude? And that's, a, that's an interesting point. It's like all of these uh, social institutions and structures that the postmodernists uh, disagree with and want to tear down to see what potential might lie behind them, people rely on that order and stability. People love that order and stability. If you take away you know, those sorts of things, it throws people into chaos, as Jordan Peterson would say. People hate that. We, like, this is why kids like to have a bedtime. They like to have order and structure, like to have a schedule. You know, I, like to, I like to know what I'm looking forward to and what's going to happen. Um, and again, pe- people will fight for that kind of slavery. It's like, uh, it reminds me of, um, what was that movie? Uh, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. When Brooks, when he becomes institutionalized, you know, he just wants to go back to jail. He just wants to be in prison, man. Fought for servitude. He ended up killing himself because he couldn't deal with having to make his own choices. He couldn't deal with freedom, you know? Yeah. And uh, that is that's at the heart of politics, man. It's like at some point, people want to be slaves. Fuck. Yeah. Fuck. And not everybody. And not, every, not, not everybody at all times. Sure. But there are times when probably most everybody wants it. Just take care of me. Just tell me what to do. Oh, yeah. Just pick the restaurant. I don't want to fight about it tonight. <laughs> Red Robin. Going to Red Robin. Red Robin. Yum. All right. Okay, got something else? No, not really. Just that that uh, that Southern Charm Burger at Red Robin's very good. <laughs> it's very good. All right, we got two more quotes. Uh, he says, "There's no democratic state that's not compromised to the very core by its part in generating human misery." True that. <laughs> Kyle's like, "All right, I like this guy. I like him." Next quote. <laughs> All right, here's the last one. Listen to this one. The collusion between philosophy and the state was most explicitly enacted in the first decade of the 19th century with the foundation of the University of Berlin, which was to become the model of higher learning throughout Europe and in the United States. The goal laid out for it by William von Humboldt was the spiritual and moral training of a nation to be achieved by deriving everything from an original principle, by relating everything to an ideal, and by unifying this principle and this ideal to a single idea, the end product would be a fully legitimate subject of knowledge in society. Each mind and an analogously organized mini-state, morally unified in the supermind of the state. Supermind. So, do you, I mean, do you, does this sound critical to you? Does he? Does it sound critical? What he's saying, like he's saying, like you know, look, we, we've created this this cutting edge education system, begin beginning with the University of Berlin, but being adopted all over the world. And what it does is this highly structured education process that produces, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a machine that sucks in our children and spits out what he calls analogously organized many states. Every child that comes out of the institution is now become a little mini version of this power structure that he calls the supermind of yeah. the state. Yeah, that does sound... Doesn't sound positive, that's for sure. Doesn't sound positive, but you know what I have to point out here, man, is that 
He says a morally unified in the supermind of the state. So when he says the supermind of the state, it reminds me again of pure eminence. It reminds me of this idea of a thinker that's not attached to an individual. And instead of uh, that being God, pure eminence, it's the state. And that's what we, we continue to bring up, is how the state is slowly taking over the place of religion. Yeah. And that's what he's saying, man. Yeah. It's like, you can, it, if, you, if you follow the spiritual path, you can find that ego-dissolving experience in God. And what Deleuze seems to be saying is you can also find it in, in the state. Golly, that is a dangerous thing. Yeah. Doesn't sound good. Doesn't sound good. Uh, I don't I don't want any part of it. I'll right. tell you that much. Alright, you got any uh any last thoughts? I had something, but it kind of slipped away there. Yep, maybe it'll come back. Alright, well sit here sit here and listen to me do my little fucking monologue. So this is the uh conclusion that I just I just wrote up so that I can uh so that I can give us a way of getting off of this fucking podcast. Alright, here we go. The supermind of the state, pure eminence, and the virtual are all concepts that Deleuze introduces in his philosophy, which, as he himself said, is done in order to have no face. Strange that he doesn't see the religious longing at the core of his and many of the other postmodernists searching. These extraordinary words or ideas which Deleuze has invented and made to exist are vehicles of transcendence. They are both other words for God. And this is what Deleuze longs to escape into, into God, into the virtual, the source of the actual, where he can disappear, where he can have no face. So this ego death, this mystic experience that he so obviously longs for, would free him from the constraints of language, culture, society, expectations, traditions, etc. It would allow him to be unencumbered by the many tentacles of reality that hold back consciousness from its greater potential. And all this from a staunch follower of Spinoza, the great pantheist, who proclaimed that all is God. This, I think, rests at the heart of the postmodernists. They understand, but will not admit, that all is God, and that they are part of that all. You can see that, that this is their, their insistence that uh, bringing the novel into being is of paramount importance. They long to create, to participate in, in the Godhead. And for this, too, they provide ample evidence. Foucault, Derrida, and Deleuze all describe the mystery that exists behind our representations, art, language, symbols, perceptions. It is this mystery into which they long to disappear. They wish to cease being an individual and melt into the force that flows behind the world and drives it ever onward. They are the atheists that wish to be God. But whose arrogance keep, keeps them from understanding that they already are? Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company I'm grateful. as we trek through this together. Thanks, bud. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. Peace.